You're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. The view from our side of the cockpit door. WAPG. It's the Airline Pilot Guy. Airline Pilot Guy episode 392. Hello, you're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show, the view from our side of the cockpit door. Your host, Captain Jeff, broadcasting live from Studio Main Man Micah in Portlandia, Maine. Today's show is recorded on the 18th of September, 2019. In today's episode, a flight carrying 326 passengers diverts because the pilot spilled coffee. And an Nairobi lawmaker wants to end flagellants on airplanes. More news, your feedback, and in today's plane tales, well-defined. So get all settled in. Tray tables and seatbacks in the upright and locked positions. Electronic devices powered on. I'm Radio Roger. Flight 392 is ready for pushback. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Airline Pilot Guys show. It's an aviation podcast where we cover uh, the week's news in aviation and also your great feedback. And joining me from his studio in the English countryside, professional photographer, former RAF, RAAF fighter pilot, former captain for an international airline based in London, it's Captain Nick. Hi there, Jeff. Uh, great to be back with, with you guys. Uh, uh, and uh, hi from uh, the United Kingdom, where the sun is just setting. What a shame I don't have my uh, lovely co-host beside me. She's not here anymore. Yeah, what is it that you said? Also joining us from his studio near the Concord Covered Bridge in Smyrna, Georgia, he's a barbecue master, motorcycle rider, pontoon boat skipper, underwater photographer, and a captain for a major U.S. legacy carrier. It's Captain Dana. Yay, I'm back with second episode in a row. Great to be back. Excellent. All right. That was short and sweet. Um... Well, so as I mentioned, uh, we are all three of, oh, wait, hang on. There's somebody else here. I just looked over to my left and noticed a fine looking gentleman sitting there. And so that means I need to find this. Also joining us from Main Man Micah Studios in Portland, Maine, it's Main Man Micah. Hey, thanks so much for having me on. It's great to have you right here in the kitchen studios of my house. Great to be here, and let me tell you what, folks. Not only are the digs really nice here, but uh, this guy can cook, and uh, I'm looking forward to the uh, stuff that you have uh, simmering on the stove and cooking in the oven right now. I'm salivating thinking of it. We've got some homemade chicken soup that you already had a chance to taste. Mm-hmm. We've got a meatloaf that'll be going to the oven very, very soon. We've got kasha varnishes that Dana can vouch for, oh, and uh, I think we'll have some kind of green vegetable just to say we're trying to do something healthy. Oh, and don't forget. Beer. Tessellation. Yes. Wonderful main beer. And uh, yeah, so uh, I'm so happy to be here. I'm on, the, on a layover in Portland, Maine, and uh, going to be back here again next week. Uh, so 
perhaps another show from here next week. We're not sure exactly when we're going to be doing it, but um, yeah. So I'm very, very pleased to be with Micah. He picked me up from the hotel and brought me over here and we spent about 45 minutes uh, setting up and uh, snacking on some stuff. And so here we are. And uh, Micah, for those who have never heard of you, like, I don't know, they've been living under a rock, but tell us a little bit about you and uh, your involvement in aviation. I have no involvement in aviation whatsoever. Oh, yeah, you do. <laughs> what do you call these podcasts that you're so involved with? I'm an av geek and uh, part of the Airplane Geeks, uh, contributor at large for the Airplane Geeks podcast. Uh, I, I'll call it a sister podcast to the Airline Pilot Guy because we're all friendly and really love one another. Also, was very proud to be able to co-host Plane Talking UK this past weekend. Um, and also, happened to be the aviation correspondent for WBZ's Overnight Show with Bradley J. Wow. See what I mean? This guy, he's into a lot of things. Okay. We're going to do something a little bit different this week. We're going to go ahead and start right off with our new segment. So here you go. Or here we go, I should say. Stand by for news. Johnny, how much more coffee? No thanks. I'm a coffee man. I know all about the coffee beans. I'm a A plane carrying 326 passengers diverted after pilot spills coffee. It doesn't say which pilot, does it? Hmm, I wonder. Transatlantic flight was forced to divert to the Republic of Ireland because a pilot spilled a cup of coffee on the aircraft's controls, it has emerged. According to the Air Accidents Investigation Branch, the Airbus 330-243, operated by Condor, was traveling from Frankfurt in Germany to Cancun in Mexico on February 6, when it was forced to jettison fuel and divert to Shannon Airport. The 49-year-old pilot, who has over 13,000 hours of flying experience, had been given a cup of coffee without a lid by cabin crew and accidentally knocked it over as the plane was flying over the North Atlantic Ocean, carrying 11 crew and 326 passengers. Some of the liquid spilled onto the audio control panel, which became very hot and produced smoke and a burning smell. The damage caused significant communication difficulty for the flight crew and forced them to wear oxygen masks, masks the report said. The equipment became so hot that one of the buttons on the control panel began to melt, which prompted the pilot to divert. Yeah, that's getting pretty serious when things are melting on your control panel. Uh, the Air Accidents Investigation Branch said that there were no injuries and that the airline had since changed its procedures to ensure cup lids are provided for flights and all routes. The operator also issued a flight crew notice reminding pilots to be careful with liquids. A spokesman for Condor, part of the Thomas Cook Group, told CNN in a statement, Flight 2116 from Frankfurt to Cancun on the 6th of February 2019 diverted to Shannon as a precautionary measure due to a minor amount of smoke in the cockpit after a liquid spillage. And it goes on to talk about the fact that they uh, investigated the airplane, everything was okay, they mopped up the coffee, and all is good, and that they apologize for any inconvenience 
for the guests on this flight. So, not the first time that we've seen stories of uh, coffee or other liquid spillage on electronics in the center console, and probably won't be the last, but... Now, my man, Micah, you're there. What was that old black and white movie? Charlton Heston or something? And he was a pilot in a, an aircraft where they tried to replicate why this uh, aircraft had crashed. And they- Nick, you, we must be brothers from another mother because I was thinking the right? exact same thing. It was called <laughs> Fate is the Hunter. And Fate it was 1964. Right. with. And which has nothing to do with the book, Fate is a Hunter, completely different plots, but it starred uh, Glenn Ford, Nancy Kwan, Suzanne Plachette, and Rod Taylor. And uh, the whole plane came down because they thought an engine was out because coffee spilled on a panel and it showed that the engine was out that was really good. That whole right engine's cockeyed on the mounts. Bent to about 30 degrees. She really blew. Really spilled my coffee, too. Want another cop? (laughs) No, I'll wait till we get in. Now, you see that coffee? It dripped through the seam onto the wire terminal, shorting out not only the radio, but the alarm system. So it wasn't, wasn't Charlton Heston. Okay, I, I sort of had it in my mind that he was the test pilot who took it up and tried to replicate what had happened. Yeah, no, it was Glenn Ford, and, uh, oh, okay. and it was a, a terrific, well, it wasn't such a great film, but it was pretty typical of the time, filmed in black and white. And when you see the aircraft on the film, you could say that that kind of aircraft, what they, the model they put would never have flown. It was really very strange looking but uh, but nonetheless well, as soon as i heard the story that's what i thought of and uh and you know what the results of this are basically uh the pilots are now required to uh, drink their coffee out of sippy cups <laughs> well funny you should say that since most of the world do drink their coffee out of sippy cups and i'm holding up a typical starbucks uh beaker with a lid on and a little hole just like a kid's uh, uh you know kids drinking mug. Um, I don't know why we don't all, uh, aren't all required to use these because I tell you what, it's not just like spilling your beer over a laptop when you pour coffee over one of those uh, uh, ACPs or a McDo or one of the, any of the boxes of tricks that are sitting there on that Airbus because that will be considerably by a factor of 10 or more, more uh, expensive than the best computer you could buy. Uh, and uh, it's going to cost uh, the company a lot of money to have uh, that replaced, let alone the cost of the diversion, etc. What, what's funny is that in the film, the result was what they need, decided to do was to seal that panel so that if liquid spilled on it, there wouldn't be any problem. But I guess that's more difficult than going with the sippy cups. The other ruling that came out of this is that uh, they wanted to make sure that the pilots used cups that were the right size for the cup holder. Yeah, there was another article yeah. I was looking at, and it wasn't this one that I have uh, here from CNN, but it showed the the, the cups were huge, the uh, paper cups they were using. that uh, Yeah, they wouldn't even fit in the cup holder. That's got to be too big. Well, you know how it well, goes. Those cup holders on the A330, if they're standard Airbus ones, are actually for the standard Airbus beaker, which is a reasonably slim beaker uh, and has no lid on. So there's a bit of a design cock up because you can only use really use one style of beaker unless you hunt around. And I found that this particular size of 
of Starbucks mug, which I'm holding up, is just the right size at the base to fit in the top half of that holder. So you can actually use this mug. And this is the one I actually flew with. And on it, it says, uh, oh, I'm trying to get it so the camera can see it. Not that you might care if you're on the podcast. It says, Nick's mug, white with one sweetener, please. So not only... Yeah. Not only does it is it a non-spill mug, it actually has, uh, just to remind the girls how I like my hot drinks, and uh, in turbulence and wherever, because this isn't the only problem. Having drinks spilled over the center console is not the only problem because uh, I've had my uh, nose wheel steering uh, tiller fail because uh, – too much coffee had been spilled over it and it had got into the mechanism. And we had an aircraft have quite a major electrical fault trying to get into JFK. And I know a bit about it because I was waiting at JFK for this aircraft to arrive um, because so much over the years, so much liquid had been spilled uh, out of the coffee uh, cup holder. It had gone onto the tray where the flight bag sits and uh, there was a little hole in that tray uh, designed to allow a little bit of liquid to seep away. Sadly, that liquid seeped away into the avionics bay and dripped directly onto one of the major electrical um, transformers down there until it went fizz-bang. And uh, the boys came into uh, JFK with uh, half their electrics out. So it's actually quite a major problem. And the, the answer is be disciplined about what you drink out of on the flight deck. Always pass, get the coffee passed to you around your back on, and on the outboard side, never pass drinks over the center console. And then these stupid mistakes won't happen. But you know what happens? You go in to buy your coffee and you go to 7-Eleven or whatever and you pay your dollar and you get, a, you get a cup this size, you know? But then for just a nickel more, you can get a big cup like that. And for just a nickel more than that, you can get a 50-gallon drum filled with it. So, you know, for the extra 10 cents, you get the big cup. <laughs> yeah, well, fortunately, well, that doesn't happen with us on our plane. <laughs> well, here at APG, we're not experts at uh, not spilling coffee or any other beverages on our computers. However, I can assure you my solution to that problem is I don't drink coffee. It's very plain simple. Well, and I was going to say, uh, we would never have a problem with spilling coffee in our steering tiller um stuff area what what would you call that uh that uh, uh i can't uh, rigging. the uh, key, the, the uh, side case holder there yeah uh because it would uh, have to be very caustic liquid to cut through the stainless steel cable that can, is connected from the steering tiller <laughs> all the way back to or down very to the uh, nose wheel steering <laughs> so there is an advantage yeah. having that old technology i guess no, yeah, I mean we're not we're not we're not relying on completely total uh, electronic uh, data transfer via a uh, was a solenoid or a transfer unit uh, that's using electronic signals to move the steering. But that's the yeah. future, Dana. That's the future. That's the future. That is the future. I know, right? So that's a wonderful thing about our airplane. So, yeah. but no, I actually don't drink coffee. I don't drink tea. As a matter of fact, the only thing I drink on the airplane is water, and that's always in a bottle. There you go. So. For yep. those non-coffee drinkers out there, you don't have to worry about it. Much less likely to spill uh, when you're sucking from a bottle. No, that's very true. <laughs> uh, I, I'm not going to. I normally would say something, like that, Nick, but I'm not going to. I'm going to. I'm pleading the fifth. By the way, uh, Anthony uh, Vot, I guess, or Vote Vot, I think, 
in the chat room says it was definitely the captain he said uh, the, uh, <laughs> yeah i i had actually heard it was the captain and he had put the cup on his tray and it tipped over which is a stupid place to stick it because yeah. that's really you know very easily knocked from there so he, he ought to have known better yes Dr. Steph did say that I was in charge of HR today, so I will just make sure that everybody needs to know that you got to be very careful where you stick. Yes. We're going green. We're going green. We're going to take care of the earth. We're going green. U.S. airlines are increasing their emissions of climate-changing gases much faster then they are boosting fuel efficiency, according to an environmental group's report. The International Council on Clean Transportation said Thursday that carbon dioxide emissions and fuel burning rose 7% from 2016 to 2018, overshadowing a 3% gain in fuel efficiency. The report's authors say airlines could reduce emissions and fuel consumption more than 25% by buying newer planes and filling them with more passengers. The report ranked Frontier the most efficient among the 11 largest U.S. airlines. The Denver-based carrier has added more than 40 Airbus jets with more efficient engines. New York-based JetBlue ranked last. You said something, Dan? Uh, I was just going to comment on it. That's because they never get into the air. Uh, <laughs> no, that's not true. JetBlue spokeswoman Tamara Young said the airline score dropped because researchers considered seating density. JetBlue has fewer rows and coach. And it burns fuel by operating more of its flights in congested areas like New York. The airline has ordered more fuel-efficient Airbus jets. The Transportation Council is a nonprofit group that works with governments to set fuel economy standards and pushes for stricter regulations to limit pollution. The council hired the researchers who uncovered Volkswagen's emissions cheating. A trade group for U.S. airlines disputed the environmental group's findings. Quote from America, uh, Airlines for America spokesman uh, Carter Yang. The fact is that the U.S. airline industry is a green economic engine. Now, when you look at the bigger picture, the U.S. carriers transported 42% more passengers and cargo in 2018 than in 2000. And we did it with just a 3% increase in total emissions. So I'm thinking to myself, um, isn't it still like air travel? I know we throw out a lot of carbon emissions and such, but compared to the same number of people getting into cars, uh, and driving around to go from place to place seems to me that uh, getting on a you know a bigger group of people on an airplane, even though it does spit out a lot of, you know, it puts out a big carbon footprint. I think it's still less of a footprint than it would be in alternative forms of transportation. Wouldn't you guys agree? I've never seen it uh, actually researched, Jeff. So it sounds right because uh, after all, if you're going to drive uh, halfway across the country and Every passenger or every perhaps two passengers, because, you know, most people are on their own in the car by on average, um, they're going to consume uh, all that gas. So, yeah, I think uh, the passenger um, fuel consumption per seat is less than driving cars. You're quite right. And, of course, we get a lot of a hit over this. There's an awful lot of noise made about air um, pollution from aircraft. Uh, I never hear of uh, anyone complaining about pollution by um, merchant vessel or by cruise liners. So what about that? True. And in this article, it says that uh, air aviation, I guess all of aviation, accounts for a small 
uh, um, number or amount of uh, greenhouse gas emissions, about two and a half percent worldwide. So that is still a pretty low figure. Uh, But I guess they're concerned that the it's growing and they want to make sure that, uh, you know, it doesn't grow too rapidly, I suppose. The uh, information that I've seen on this indicate that uh, airlines and, and aircraft are far less uh, polluting than uh, than vehicles in general. First of all, your, your jet engines are far more efficient. Additionally, as, as uh, Nick was pointing out, far the what you find with the uh, um, uh, boat traffic and ship traffic is they're usually using bunker fuel, and they are very very dirty. Now they're converting to natural gas slowly but surely, but it's completely and totally filthy. And uh, and because you are transporting more people on an aircraft per uh based on the amount of fuel burned it's far more efficient than uh, than vehicles just like buses are more efficient than individual vehicles and trains one could argue also that there's a lot more air traffic than there has been in the past uh there are more aircraft in the sky so you know you take the total i mean maybe okay our our, our diesel engine uh Mad Dog that we fly isn't very fuel efficient, but you know, when you take, you know, maybe it's what two aircraft or, or one, maybe that's what's the, the, taking up the total count and increasing the amount of air pollution. However, I still don't think we're, we're having that big of an effect on the atmosphere at all. Now, I guess the, uh, you know, the, the beginning of the article here is basically saying, um, yeah, there it, it's increasing, but the, uh, the spokesman for, Airlines for America made a very good point. He said, you know, look, look what's happened between now and back in 2000. Uh, we had 42% more passengers in cargo than in 2000, and we only increased total emissions by 3%. So I think that's actually pretty good, wouldn't you say? I think it's great. The other thing to bear in mind is that aircraft pollution, while it's not pollution, uh, seems to be polluting and visible because you see contrails. So people who don't know anything see contrails or but I'm not even, I'm not even going to say the other word, but see the contrails and think, oh my gosh, look at all that smoke coming out of the airplane. It's chemtrails. Yeah. Yeah. We have to spray those. I'm afraid. Yeah. Just to keep everyone under control. Um, a pull quote from this article reports like Thursdays could give a boost to flight shaming, discouraging people from flying to avoid pumping more carbon into the atmosphere. hope that's not the case. I mean, it's interesting. They talk about uh, the expansion of air traffic uh, over you know the period. But, of course, if people are expanding, they're probably going to be buying new airplanes. Uh, so new airplanes are almost by definition considerably more uh, fuel e- economic uh, than um, the previous generation. So th- th- it's a it's – a picture that's looking up, not down. And just an aside, I was on the way to um, to work this trip on uh, Monday morning, and I, I had a conversation, you know, because I'm in my uniform, and I had a conversation with a, a man, an older gentleman, uh, who was very inquisitive about uh, my job and flying, and uh, kind of an, I don't know, an average person. Um, and he started asking me about whether the earth was round or flat and no, really you, you met a flat earther i did <laughs> and although he didn't claim that he was but he said that he spends a lot of time because he is the uh, he's a stay-at-home man or husband and his wife is the one that does the work and he was accompanying her to uh 
to her job that morning on the train because I guess he was kind of like her bodyguard. Um, and and I, at first I thought maybe he was just joking around. Then I realized he was serious. And then um, he, after we finished the subject of flat earth and spherical earth, he uh, started asking me about chemtrails. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh. <laughs> wow. Amazing. Well, it was only Eratosthenes, um, the uh, Hellenic astronomer, uh, in the year well, one ninety four BC. Uh, effectively, he was born. He lived to uh, two seventy six. Uh, he worked it out. So uh, the fact that now uh, I don't know, all those years later, um, you know, how come we're still wondering if some bloke back back in ancient Greece could work it out? How come? We're still thinking about I have the it. answer because YouTube. <laughs> that conspiracy has been going on since the year 194, Nick. Uh, yeah, it must have been. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I was going to say people still believe in aliens. I mean, really. So, I mean, everybody's entitled to believe what they want to believe, whether it be factually truth, true or, or, or not proven. Um, people are entitled to believe what they want to believe in the, in the end. But we all know the truth. Uh, the question was, can the captains uh, have the ability to turn off uh, discretion over when to turn off the chemtrails, or is it always on? You know, I always leave it on because it looks cool. Well, I, am, oh, I have I, not I seen the controls yet. I think that uh, they're they're just ha it's just happening without my knowledge. Apparently, well, yeah. They they put it. Uh, they often remarket as seatbelts, Jeff. So uh, you know, every time you put the seatbelts on. Oh, okay, that makes sense. <laughs> okay moving on item c this is from defensenews.com and it's a story about the u.s air force kc-46 that very successful oh, another <laughs> tanker product and they're having more more issues. They've had a lot of issues with this airplane, and apparently the latest, uh, let's see, in a move that could have major impacts on the already delayed tanker program, the U.S. Air Force has indefinitely barred the KC-46 from carrying cargo and passengers. The decision was made after an incident occurred when the cargo locks on the bottom of the floor of the aircraft became unlocked during a recent flight, creating concerns that airmen could potentially be hurt or even killed by heavy equipment that suddenly burst free during a flight. As a result of this discovery, the Air Force has submitted a Category 1 deficiency report and working with Boeing to identify a solution. And uh, just so that uh, you understand, this is not the first issue with this airplane. Uh, there are some other Category 1 deficiencies. Uh, category 1 is the worst, the most serious, the most significant. Um, the Tanker's Remote Vision System, or RVS, the camera system that allows the KC-46 boom operators to steer the boom into a receiver aircraft without having to look out a window or use visual cues provides imagery in certain lighting conditions that appears warped or misleading. Boeing has agreed to pay for potentially extensive hardware and software fixes, but the Air Force believes it will be three or four years until the system is fully functional. Uh, they said that they have recorded instances, the Air Force has, of the boom scraping against the airframe of receiver aircraft. Ew, that's not good. Although that's what it sounded like in the 141, but I don't think it was scraping the fuselage. It just had a weird sound. But um, 
Uh, so apparently that's uh, that's not a good thing, obviously. And that has that's linked to the RSV, the uh, remote vision system as well. And uh, this is an interesting one. I thought the uh, last one listed in this article, category one deficiency, uh, they need to redesign the boom to accommodate the A10, which currently does not generate the thrust necessary to push into the boom for refueling. Uh, this problem is a requirements change by the Air Force, which approved Boeing's design in 2016. So, um, yeah, that. so if you're an A-10 driver, I guess you can get kind of like connected or sort of touching the boom, but it doesn't have enough oomph to get the thing completely latched on to the boom. And, of course, if you're not latched on, you're not going to get any fuel. So have Boeing built a bit of a stiff one here? I think so, yes. That's one way to put it, Nick. Okay. Yeah, having having problems getting it. To, um, HR is not here. I'm getting it in. <laughs> <laughs> I'm we not saying one word. Here. Ten pilots can't get it in. Is that what we're saying? <laughs> yeah, I was. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and, and that's based on Air Force design. That I'm wasn't glad Boeing's. I didn't finish that comment. <laughs> that that wasn't Boeing's problem. That was the Air Force design. They forgot. Oh yeah, the A10 doesn't have quite enough thrust. Unfortunately, uh, I think drivers. the A10 <laughs> has no problems getting it in with a KC135. <laughs> Wow, a different amount of thrust, you know. But it, that's what she said. It, but let's look. <laughs> let's look at the KC forty six for a minute. You can't fuel from it. You can't carry cargo with it. You can't carry passengers with it. What does it do? It, it flies around into a hotel. <laughs> you could take it around the circuit. Yeah, obviously some some major issues they're having to deal with. Ah, oh, that's that's sad. No way, Boeing having some major issues to deal with. Say it isn't so. Yeah. Okay. Uh, moving on to D, uh, Battle Creek, Michigan, from fox17online.com. Before Betty Young took off for an afternoon flight on Thursday, she inspected every inch of her airplane. She checked the flaps on the wings, the oil and gas tanks, and the tires below. And she's quoted here, I feel better climbing in my airplane than I do in my car. She said during an interview at the W.K. Kellogg Airport where she keeps her plane, that's for sure. She then kicked away the stops that held the Cessna 172 four-seater plane in place, pulled it into the hangar with her hands. It's a routine she's been doing for decades. It's what she did August 30th on her 90th birthday. I flew my airplane all by myself and pulled it out of the hangar all by myself, Young said, about her birthday flight to Jackson, Michigan. And my friends all got there before I did. So they were all waiting on the tarmac, singing happy birthday when I got out of my airplane. Uh, that day, she they showered her with hugs and cards before eating some of her chocolate birthday cake. Some of her friends, who are pilots as well, flew their own planes from Kalamazoo and Battle Creek 50 miles away to the celebration in Jackson. Three of the pilots were women, she said. She's grateful to have friends who love to fly as much as she does. She said she didn't even start taking uh, flying lessons until she was over 50 years old wow but she's been doing it for about 40 years now 90 years old that's a that's a pretty amazing accomplishment i think i'm uh, very impressed uh, uh, and uh, if i can still be, be flying airplanes at 90 i'll be uh, very chuffed uh, if i'm still alive at 90 i'll be that's pretty I impressed <laughs> i think you have a, a pretty good uh, shot at it nick uh, based on the longevity of your father well fingers crossed exactly right yep. yeah well, I think this is fantastic. It just proves that, uh, you know, age age doesn't limit you in aviation. The only thing that would limit you is your medical ability to hold the license, you right. know, hold the medical. That's it. But, 
why not? Why not enjoy life? Exactly. Excuse me. <laughs> um, a Nairobi lawmaker wants to put an end to in-flight flatulence on airplanes. She put forth a plan to end what she considers a big problem. Range constituency representative Dr. Lillian Gogo of Nairobi called for a resolution to people passing gas in airplane cabins during a parliamentary debate. Oh, wait a minute. I think some punctuation needs to be in there. Anyway, uh, she called for a resolution to people passing gas in airplane cabins during a parliamentary debate Wednesday regarding the National Assembly Committee on Transport, Public Works, and Housing. According to Nairobi News, uh, there is one irritant that is often ignored, and this is the level of farting within the aircraft, she said. There are passengers who literally are literary. Hmm. I think it means literally irritate fellow passengers by passing bad smell and uncomfortable fart. (laughs) Well, perhaps they're just writing about bad smells and uncomfortable. um, Oh, that's true. Maybe that's she's just reading some really bad literature. I I think the person lets out the fart is very comfortable afterwards. That's true. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, it's it's only uncomfortable for the uh, smeller, not the. uh, That's right. uh, Not the dealer. If there is anyone given irritant that makes people fight on board, it is the fart. It is terrible within the plane. <laughs> I love, I love this, this translation. English. <laughs> English is the fourth language. Uh, let's see. When pressed by another member of parliament on how exactly she would implement such reform, she said it starts with staff training. We need special training on aircraft crew. <laughs> and they special training. Go around going, no, no farting. No farting. It was you. I, yep. Stop it. Okay. Well, she goes in a little bit more detail. We need special training on aircraft crews so that they can provide medicines like bicarbonate of soda oh, okay. to passengers after meals and drinks have been served. We should also have paramedics who are trained in basic first Ooh. aid included in the international and local flights. I, apparently, some of this farting is so bad. That it causes major medical issues. I wonder, I wonder if Acme Pink flies there and there was perhaps an issue with one of their pilots. Uh, is that where? Oh, I, I see what you're. you're uh, yeah, Acme Pink. Might be. Yeah. Acme Pink. No, I didn't know about that. Um, <laughs> it, it could be, actually, a, a possibility. But now, forgive me. I'm not a great uh, drinker of bicarbonate soda, but isn't it quite a gassy liquid? It is. Especially so when mixed wouldn't that actually make the problem worse? I would think so. I don't know how that whole science works, but I don't think that bicarbonate of soda is going to help you, is it? No, it won't. That's like Alka-Seltzer. Absolutely. And on top of that, uh, apparently <laughs> this uh, member of parliament has not been uh, skilled uh, or schooled on, on Delta P uh, because there are some pressure differentials that sometimes cause this to happen legitimately. Although I think perhaps the law should be that only anesthesiologists should be allowed to um, – flatulate on aircraft because they are absolutely professional gas passers. Did you say Delta P? Ah, oh yeah, Delta P. Thought so. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I love this. Yeah. Uh, she also suggested limiting alcohol consumption on flights could amount to less cheese cutting as well. That, I'm lost. Well, is that you know, some certainly less wine? Because then you'd have less cheese to go with the wine. <laughs> I think somebody say they cut, you pull... cut the cheese is another term for farting. Oh, okay, fair enough. Yeah, yeah, yes, I think it's an Americanism. Yeah, that's probably uh, I, just an Americanism. I, I'm a little worried about the state of Kenyan law if this is one of their lawmakers. 
Well, I mean, you could actually hang individual oxygen masks throughout the entire aircraft. That <laughs> so way, you're going to say hang individuals. <laughs> you can hang individuals as well. It's a little extreme. And I was looking at some of the comments of this article and uh, wherever I got it. Uh, and, and somebody said, uh, don't forget, they do make, um, what do you, what do you all call the, uh, underwear you call it? Uh, shreddies. Shreddies. They make shreddies hey, that have the charcoal impregnated yeah. shreddies you can get. Exactly. Yes. That might help. That'd be kind of lumpy though. Uh, we no, have, no, apparently they, they, they're fine and they work well. We have a, a listener actually that, uh, flies for, uh, uh, Kenya Airways flies 787s and I'm hoping that he might be listening and perhaps can write in and comment about this particular uh, government official. Yes. And the problem yes. apparently in the airlines that are flying around that area of the world. You know, they, there's one kind of law that says uh, possession is nine tenths of the law, isn't it? Isn't there another one that says uh, he who smelt it dealt it? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Well, there you go. I think this is this, this law uh, lawmaker has, uh, has a really uh, crappy legis- legislation plan here. No pun intended. <laughs> Bam. Okay, hang on. How am I doing? I think it's all going to go up in smoke. Okay. Yeah. No, you reach a certain point. Will be you if you I know. <laughs> I know. <laughs> yes. All right. This one is serious. Uh, you remember we talked about this accident on our show last year, I believe, or maybe the year before, a couple of years ago. It's been a while. Um. This crash occurred not too far, Dana, from the area uh, where you live. That's um, correct. And uh, it was a Cessna 500, November 8, uh, Delta X-ray, collided with terrain in a residential neighborhood near Marietta, Georgia. The private pilot and sole occupant was fatally injured. The airplane was destroyed by the impact and post-impact fire. Uh, The flight originated from Cincinnati Airport, Ohio, about 6.12 p.m., local time and it was destined for atlanta fulton county airport in georgia uh, that's the atlanta airport or atlanta area and uh the uh, let's see this is from aviation safety.net uh, or network the flight was uneventful until the air traffic controller amended the flight plan which required the pilot to manually enter the new routing information into the gps by the way this is from the final report a few minutes later the pilot told the controller that he was having problems with the gps and asked for a direct route to his destination. The controller authorized the direct route and instructed the pilot to descend from 22,000 feet to 6,000 feet, during which time the sound of the autopilot disconnect was heard on the cockpit voice recorder. During the descent, the pilot told the controller that the airplane had a steering problem, whatever that means, and was in the clouds. The pilot was instructed to descend the airplane to 4,100 feet, which was the minimum vectoring altitude. The airplane continued to descend, entered visual meteorological conditions, VMC, and then descended below the assigned altitude. The controller queried the pilot about the airplane's low altitude and instructed the pilot to maintain 4,100 feet. The pilot responded that he was unsure if he would be able to climb the airplane back to that altitude due to steering issues. The controller issued a low-altitude warning again and advised the pilot to climb back to 4,100 feet. The pilot responded that the autopilot was working again and that he was able to climb the airplane to the assigned altitude. This is all just amazing to me. Uh, the controller then instructed the pilot to change to another radio frequency, but the pilot responded that he was still having a problem with the GPS. The pilot asked the controller to give him direct routing to the airport. 
A few minutes later, the pilot told the controller that he was barely able to keep the airplane straight and its wings level. The controller asked the pilot if he had the airport in sight, which he did not. The pilot then declared an emergency and expressed concerns related to identifying the landing runway. Afterward, radio contact between the controller and the pilot was lost. Shortly before the airplane impacted the ground, a witness saw the airplane make a complete 360-degree roll to the left, enter a steep 90-degree bank to the left, roll inverted, and enter a vertical nose-down dive. Another witness saw the airplane spiral to the ground. The airplane impacted the front lawn of a private residence, and a post-crash fire ensued. The aircraft was a Sierra Eagle wing conversion of a Cessna 500 Citation I. This performance upgrade also allows single pilot operations. However, the NTSB found no record of the pilot receiving training for single pilot operations in the accident airplane. Therefore, it was unlikely that the pilot was properly certificated to act as a single pilot. The pilot, this is the, I made, put this one in bold. The pilot historically had difficulty flying the airplane without the aid of the autopilot. Given the pilot's previous experience with the GPS installed in the airplane, it is likely that during the accident flight, the pilot became confused about how to operate the GPS and ultimately was unable to properly control the airplane without the autopilot engaged. So basically, he stalled the airplane and crashed because apparently he did not know how to fly the airplane manually, which is just amazing to me. How does somebody get to this point in his career flying airplanes if this was his career? I, I, I just don't get it. You, the sounds like an could, owner. It sounds like an owner operator. It could be, um, but this is a high performance airplane. I know that people yes. would argue that fly business jets that a Citation One is not a high performance airplane, but it's no. a jet, and it it is high performance compared to a lot of general aviation uh, out there. And the fact that, I mean, how how could he even get into an airplane? Knowing that if the autopilot system isn't working, he's not going to be able to fly the airplane. I, I just don't. I well, don't get that. How at all. did he pass any of his checks uh, to allow him to uh, get to the stage of flying that he was in without someone realizing this? I don't know. Well, they there found no record of uh, the NTSB found no record of the pilot receiving training for single pilot operations in the accident. Yeah, but, but what about all so the he other? Wasn't, he wasn't properly certified for it. Right, but that's just for that. Let's just take that out of the equation. How does somebody get to the point that he's flying a jet and, you know, because he's got to have a, well, do do you have to have a commercial instrument? I mean, uh, you have to have an instrument rating and at least a private certificate to operate a jet, I would imagine. No, actually, you don't even need to have an instrument rating as long as you don't go above 18,000 feet. Okay, well, obviously, well, you know, he was up around 22,000, which does not yeah, necessarily so obviously mean. Obviously, he had an instrument rating. Well, or. I would, one would hope. Yeah, that's the thing. Maybe he didn't have an instrument rating. Um, maybe he was just operating the airplane. I mean, it wouldn't be a surprise, would it? Uh, because he didn't have the certification for single pilot operation of this airplane that he, you know, maybe he didn't have any any certificates or Licenses you know, for and that's, and that's the unknown here because they didn't release his name or his certificate information. And from the way it sounds, is he probably was not instrument rated, and thus. But I think should, that they would have said that in this um, this final report. I, I would imagine. I don't know. I don't know. Um, yeah, but it's just again, this is, has me shaking my head. Like, 
how do you as a as a person um knowing that you can't fly an airplane unless the autopilot's on how do you even step into the airplane um knowing that there's a 50 50 chance here maybe not 50 50 chance but there's a chance that you're not going to be able to fly the airplane if necessary. I don't know. It just doesn't make well, any sense. Well, you know, and what's amazing here, Jeff, is they really, I'm looking, you know, through the whole thing, the only the only time that they really even recognize or, or say anything regarding his certification was the fact that they found no record of the pilot receiving training for single pilot. They don't even talk about whether he was type reading the, type reading the aircraft, whether he's a private pilot, commercial pilot, instrument pilot, nothing. There's no no indication here at all. Right. But um, as I said, again, I, this is just an excerpt from the final report. So I would imagine if we we could probably find the uh, yeah, there's a link here in the in the article to the final report, the NTSB investigation, perhaps uh, somewhere in there, they they go through and they, you know, list the qualifications and everything. So I, I suspect since that wasn't made a, a point wasn't made about that in this excerpt only about the fact that he wasn't certificated to fly this particular mod or this particular airplane single pilot. I would imagine that that's the only thing that they found that he didn't have. But again, I have not looked at the final report myself. I'm only reading from this excerpt. So, Well, the first line in the <laughs> in the final report, the private pilot yeah. departed on an instrument flight rules flight plan. Now, do they mean private pilot because he owns the airplane? And it's a private pilot. He's not flying it commercially. Doesn't necessarily mean that he doesn't have a. I would imagine that it means that he does not have a commercial license. But uh, I don't know. Pilot, the pilot held the type rating. I'm just scanning through real quick. The pilot okay. had held the type rating for the airplane, but the pilot's personal logbooks were not available for review. Oh, okay. Where 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 do you see that? I was on page two, first paragraph. Okay, I only have one page. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I'm, 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 uh, no, I'm going, I'm, I'm at the actual report. Oh, I'm, okay. I'm interested to. Okay, I see. I don't have the final, I'm not looking at the final report. I'm, I'm looking at it because, okay. you know, we're, we're raising some questions here based on some information that would be in there. Yeah. And not, not in the excerpt. So that's what so you said. He, he did not have a type rating for the airplane, but he did have a type he rating. He did have a type rating. Okay. Interesting. He did. On top of page number two on the final, it says the pilot held a type rating for the airplane. Okay, but the pilot's personal logbooks were not available for review. Okay, uh, so as a result, his overall currency and total flight experience in the accident airplane could not be determined. But at least they'd be ha they'd have the records available from the FAA. You know what licenses right. ratings that he did hold. There's there's 13 pages. I'm scanning pretty quick. Yeah. Oh, that's right. We don't need <laughs> to. Yeah. The point of this yeah, we, is we, doesn't matter. You know, really, uh, it's the fact that. Obviously, the competency of this pilot was not, it was questionable at best. At best. Yeah. Yeah. The fact that he needed the autopilot to fly the airplane and he was so underconfident that uh, he couldn't really uh, manage it without is a major concern. He was instrument rated, multi-engine land, and he was uh, 78 years old. So, yes, he was instrument rated. And okay. he had class three medical and total flight time that they can ascertain is six thousand hours. Wow! So, so that um, and he's instrument rated. I don't know. I, I don't see how you can't I, control I don't, an airplane. That's I, I, I I suspect at that age it might have been some uh, some loss of some currency and currency issues, possibly, yeah. and possibly some type of medical event that was going on. Um, possibly any number of things. I mean, uh, it could, it could be been, a can't flyitis. 
yeah, can't fly itis. Could be, you know, um, you know, pressurization issues that, you know, slow leak in the cabin that you end up with some, uh, some issues there too. I mean, there's any, any number of things that could have gone wrong here that we'll never know, but yeah. this well, is just... he, he was down at 4,000 feet. So I don't know if that's going to be a factor, but uh, don't they carry out an autopsy following an accident like this? So wouldn't they be able to work out if he had a major, I don't know, a heart attack or something. Right. Anyway, I guess we're, to a certain extent we are guessing. Yes, we are. Yes, we are. Anyway, just thought that was an interesting Oh yeah, uh, kind of an end to because at the time we were just scratching our heads. We had no idea what caused this airplane to go out of control. We just, I think, likely assumed it was some kind of a mechanical issue because he kept saying that he couldn't steer the airplane. But uh, I guess he wasn't capable of steering the airplane. Was the bottom line? This this is interesting. A friend of the pilot who was the flight instructor was who was a flight instructor and the airplane airplane mechanic had flown with the pilot several times stated that he repeatedly told the pilot that he needed to fly with a co-pilot. The pilot said he preferred to fly alone. The pilot also told his friend that he did not need a single pilot exemption because the airplane had been given a single pilot exemption. That's not true. <laughs> All right. There you go. I'm, I'm not going to scan it anymore, but that, I found oh, so that you, you said the instructor said that told the guy, you need to make sure that you fly with a co-pilot. Yes. Ah, yeah. And okay. then the, and then he turned around and said, uh, like the airplane alone. is, the airplane is fine. Uh, I don't need the pilot exemption. Well, the airplane probably was fine. Yeah, it was until <laughs> <laughs> it ended up burning hole. Well, because he wasn't long. fine. That's, that's the problem. The weakness is the pilot, not the airplane. Yeah. Oh so, boy. Anyways, enough about that. Yeah. Okay, moving on. Uh, this I didn't even notice was in our news folder until right th- this moment. <laughs> Item G. Uh, on Monday night, September 16th, the government of Gibra- Gibraltar issued a press release following the closure of Gibraltar Airport on Sunday evening due to air traffic controller sickness. The, governor, the government statement suggested that when other off-duty controllers were then asked to cover his absence, no one was willing to do so. The statement went on to say that the government regrets that the controllers were clearly not being as cooperative as they could have been. Speaking on behalf of the controllers working for NATS at Gibraltar Airport, Prospect National Secretary Steve Jari said the Gibraltar government has either misunderstood or misrepresented the position. On Sunday, one of the two controllers rostered to cover the afternoon evening shift called in sick. The day shift controller was available to cover the afternoon, but was unable to work beyond 7 p.m. because of the legal restrictions on controller hours. Those same legal restrictions prevented any of the other controllers uh, from being called in. Two controllers were on leave and overseas, and thus unavailable for short notice cover. In short, it wasn't a lack of cooperation or unwillingness. It simply wasn't possible for any of the other controllers to provide cover. The increasingly commercial nature of air traffic ma- management contracts means there are constant pressures on cost from airport operators and airlines. Service providers such as NATS have little choice but to respond. However, cuts in staff numbers come at a price in terms of resilience. So, apparently, well, there was an, uh, an issue caused by sickness. They didn't have the proper staffing. And legally, the ones that were available to work couldn't because of the, of the, you know, those rules, those uh, laws that we have to abide by. And uh, I guess the government was a little uh, kind of in a, in a tizzy when it came to the fact that they had to shut down the operation until they could find a controller to take over. 
By the sounds of it, the staffing levels are at an absolute minimum, and the controllers had been propping uh, the airport uh, operation hours up by um, doing their best, uh, but because at this particular time uh, they, you know, were down below the the number required, nobody on uh, call to fill in for sickness. Um, the the tower wasn't able to operate. So, sounds to me like uh, the uh, government is uh, being a bit disingenuous, and they just need to make sure they've got sufficient people. Uh, on call and available to work. Otherwise, you just can't operate an airport. Come on, guys. Well, I have a question. This may, I, I, I don't know the answer. I'm just thinking. But I know there are several airports that we fly into that when the control tower closes, it becomes a non-controlled airport. I don't know yeah. what the logistics are at this particular airport or whether it can even be possibly done or whether it's impossible, you know, based on, regulations but uh, you know that's just thought why couldn't it be uncontrolled airspace uh, yeah it's an interesting point uh, i don't know what the uh, easa regulations are concerning that but this is an international airport um and it has very very tight airspace restrictions since it's right on the edge of uh, spanish airspace mm-hmm. and uh, spain get very upset if anyone uh, tries to um uh, or maneuvers through their airspace to get to Gibraltar Airport. And also, it's an extremely difficult airport. To, so I think the likelihood of them being able to operate it without a controller would be uh, pretty much zero, since uh, uh, Al has talked about it at length and said that it's uh, when he used to operate in there, it was a captain's only landing because of all the, the threats uh, that present uh, are presented to crews that try and fly in there regularly. Yeah, and see, that's that's like, uh, you know, I'm not very familiar with the area. Obviously, you're far more familiar. And even I was thinking maybe one of our listeners like Captain Al could chime in and say and, and maybe give us some feedback as to why it couldn't be a, a, a non-controlled airport. So that's very good points there, Nick. Al has spoken about it tremendously and said it's a very, very difficult uh, airport to land in. The crosswinds are really difficult. And even he has been diverted many, many times to other airports because of the winds and the crosswinds. Additionally, Gibraltar is the only airport that I know of, and Liz has just mentioned it, that has a road, a regular highway that runs right through it, crossing the runway that needs to be closed down every time uh, an aircraft lands. But I guess my question, Nick, that I wasn't sure if you would know about is based on its location it's a very strategic location uh wouldn't it is it does the base the the air force base or the raf base use that same airport and it wouldn't be a matter of national security wouldn't they call an raf controllers to keep it open well i think they do have uh, raf controllers there um so i think if needs be uh had it been a military requirement uh to keep it open uh they would have uh, I mean, military personnel are allowed to work out with uh, the, the normal civilian hours. So because it's exigencies uh, of the service, you know, you can be told to work for 36 hours straight if uh, needs be, because that's what is expected of someone in the military. But uh, I don't suppose there were any military operations or that wasn't required. And they're not going to do that for a civilian aircraft. Yeah, this, this airport, Dana, is extremely complex, and I just can't imagine it operating without, a, without air traffic control. I, I don't think it's possible, actually. 
And it's not a uh, it's not a regular occurrence, it, to my knowledge, uh, in Europe. Now, of course, the airports I flew into were always, you know, uh, big major international airports always had a, every service you can imagine. But I don't think there's nearly the number of uh, airfields in Europe that uh, work in the same way that many of the smaller airports in the United States do. Yeah, yeah and, and that was the basis of my question. As soon as I started thinking about it, I mean, yeah. when Liz uh, mentioned the road crossing, now I exactly know <laughs> the airport. But, we're it, but it's about. an interesting. No, I was trying to make the point that it's an interesting thought. What? Why? why even on a benign airport, uh, are there uh, very few airports that don't have air traffic? Um, I don't know. I'm willing to right. be educated on that by our listeners. Perhaps they can let me know. Yeah, maybe. All right. Well, very interesting. I had not heard about the uh, airport closure in this controversy or controversy. Um, that ends our news segment. Yay. Um, hey. And now it's time for us to kind of get caught up with each other and see what's been happening since the last episode. And uh, Dana, how have you been, sir? Are you still on vacation? I am indeed. I start a trip tomorrow morning and looking forward to stepping back into the flight deck. I actually had to look up uh, look up a few things just to refresh my memory about, uh, well, num- number one, my login to make sure I can sign into the crew portal to log in when I uh, sign in when I go to work tomorrow. So that's, uh, you know, that's what happens when you're away from work. And, you know, all this fandangled technology that we have, these iPhones and uh, whatever, I'll picture my puppy there. Um, that uh, we have every time I log on on my iPhone, it recognizes my face. I never have to type the password in. So you, uh, you can't remember your password. <laughs> I couldn't. I couldn't remember, but I figured out on the iPhone how to go in and pull, pull up my password. Well, how long has it been? It's only been a couple of weeks, I think. Right? Three weeks. Isn't it one, two, and three, I, four, five? Yeah, but the problem. The problem was I changed it just. Oh before yeah, I went on yeah. we're forced to change it every so often. Yeah. yeah. That, that could be a problem. Uh, I think it's 90 days or something like you that. You need to use LastPass or something, man. The, the password uh, uh, manager. That's the way to go. That's what Leo Laporte would tell you. Yes. And that's what Captain Jeff Nielsen would tell you, too. What? LastPass? LastPass. Yeah. All you only right, have to remember put, one password. The last uh, password you have to remember. Last password. Yeah, it's called just LastPass. Yep, I wrote down LastPass. Yeah. I wrote it down. That's really, um, but, that's, I mean, that's the way I remember my passwords. I just remember one very long, complicated password. And then once that's done, uh, it, it uh, really helps you uh, remember some really crazy passwords. It doesn't really, you know, you don't really remember. It just fills it in for you. So it's nice. Until somebody hacks it and then they get all your passwords. Yeah, they can't hack it. Yeah. Um, so anyways, uh, yeah. yeah, so I, I resolved that issue last night, updated my uh, my uh, working computer for work to make sure I have the most current data. So when I go into work and I'll do it again uh, tonight before I leave tomorrow morning and I have, uh, let's see, a Birmingham overnight coming up. Birmingham, not England, folks, Birmingham. <laughs> my airplane doesn't go that far. Uh, Birmingham, Alabama and a Daytona Beach. Uh, layover, which I'll be going to my uh, friend's uh, place for dinner in Daytona Beach at, uh, oh my God, I'm having a brain fart, of course. I'll think of the name um, of their restaurant here shortly, uh, right there on Main Street, very close to our overnight. So, of course, we won't have this release before time I'm in, in Daytona. So, um, But I'm looking forward to it. I, I haven't flown in, what, uh, three weeks? So, 
It should be fun. Okay, people, you've been warned. I have been warned. Uh, no, people they have, have been, been warned. warned. <laughs> they have been warned. <laughs> and I'm, you know what the best part about it is? Dana, I'm no looking, I, I am looking forward to a week of flying, and it looks like the weather is going to be okay. Don't say it. Don't say it. <laughs> <laughs> i tell you what. Right now, I wouldn't want to be flying around the Houston area. I don't know if no, you saw no, that. Houston, I, don't, I don't go well. With a, I do go to Omaha. Yeah. They may get some. No, I think that. you're fine. As long as you don't get too far north up in the Minnesota, Wisconsin area, it looked like they were having some nasty weather as well. And then off the uh, off the Carolina coast, uh, some pretty nasty stuff. But I've been very fortunate on this trip uh, to not run into any weather at all. It's been wonderful. Yeah, it, it's a huge difference between the summer. I mean, after the summer, and I don't know if you saw that memo that came out mm-hmm. about the perfect storm. Um, which uh, was we had a lot of issues going on. I honestly wasn't exaggerating the summer when I said that it was a very, very difficult and rough summer, especially for us junior folks. We just Uh got hammered. So it was a nice break. I needed to get away and uh, not think about work for a few weeks. And and it's been it's been marvelous. I start uh, three days uh, tomorrow and then I have two days off and then it's just six straight days on. And then guess what? I get recurrent training. So I'm getting, you know, recurrent and getting ready to, to go in the sim and I'll be fresh uh, off the line of at least flying for nine days before I go in. So yeah, that's, that's it. That's okay. all that's going on with me. It's pretty, pretty low key. Hopefully next week I can update you on, on what it's like flying out there in, in the real world again. All righty. Um, I'm going to go next because uh, I'm going to save the best for last. Captain Nick has some good stuff to tell us about since our last episode. He's been a busy man. Um, I have been, um, well, I went through recurrent training. I think, though, I did a show after recurrent training, didn't I? Didn't we? We did it on Friday. So, a uh, nice, quiet weekend. Uh, girls came back from the beach and uh, left on a, this four-day trip on Monday. And it was a uh, double Syracuse layover Monday night, Tuesday night, and uh, now I'm here in the wonderful city of Portland and with our main man, Micah. And uh, the weather up here in Syracuse, New York, and Portland, Maine is wonderful. Temperatures in the 50s, 60s, low 70s. Uh, in Atlanta, still quite warm, although I guess today was a little bit cooler. They got a little bit of a break with the temperature. Um, while I was in Syracuse, uh, I uh, well, before I got to Syracuse, uh, a few days before, I was contacted by uh, Stefan Balmer and uh, Tom Catalino, uh, and they were noticing on the APG community calendar that uh, I was going to be in the Syracuse area and wondered if I would be interested in having some sort of a meetup while I was there. And I said, absolutely. And so on Monday, uh, Stefan, who is a physics professor at Syracuse University, and our layover hotel is right there, basically on the Syracuse University campus. Uh, he picked me up, and we drove up uh, around the where the airport is uh, to a place called Vietnamese Noodle House, I believe. I have a little uh, audio from that. And uh, also, uh, Tom Catalino uh, was able to join us as well. And so, pulled out the H5, and made a little recording of our meetup on Monday night. So here it is. Hi there, I'm on a trip, and I'm in Syracuse, I guess North Syracuse, New York, on a layover. And a couple of folks uh, looking at the 
APG community calendar uh, noticed that I was going to be in the area. And they said, hey, let's get together for dinner or some kind of a little meetup. And so here we are at, what's the name of the place? The Vietnamese um, Noodle House in uh, North Syracuse. And uh, let's see, I guess we'll start with Stefan, who uh, picked me up from my hotel next to the uh, Syracuse University, where he works. So he's going to introduce himself, tell you all a little bit about himself, and then we're going to hand it over to Tom. Hey, everybody. This is Stefan Malmer here. Uh, yeah, I'm very glad to uh, meet Jeff here and welcome him to Syracuse before the summer is over. Uh, not sure whether he's aware, but the weather will turn worse here and later in the year. Well, so what do you do for a living? Well, you know, there's this physics thing that keeps me busy during the day. <laughs> Pays for my flying as well, but uh, yeah, I'm also uh, CFI in the flying club here. And we have a couple of airplanes here in the Syracuse area, so if you're interested in flying, Please contact us. This is a great place to do it. What's the name of the Syracuse Flying Club, appropriately named. Yep. Yeah, then I hand over to Tom, is it? Yes, yes Tom Catalino. I um, joined the Flying Club about a month ago. I am <clears throat> working on my private pilot's license. I have about 25 hours. Um, loving the instruction, loving the club, having an absolute blast flying the airplane. New experiences every single time, um, which my wife is probably pretty sick of hearing about. Um, she reminds me quite often that she has not bought a ticket. I'll tell her a story about experience I had on, on one of my lessons, and she'll say, you know, Tom, I haven't bought a ticket yet. I said, I know, honey. It's a good thing because I don't know how to fly yet. So... Um, but having an absolute blast doing it, and um, happy to meet you, Jeff. Having uh, having a real nice dinner here, um, enjoying the camaraderie, enjoying the fun, and uh, certainly loving the flying. Excellent, uh, and I say this over and over and over again, and you're going to hear it again. The best part about doing this show is just meeting the people that listen to it, our community, and uh, it's such a pleasure to meet Stefan and Tom for the first time. Hopefully, it won't be the last. And again, uh, make sure that you, uh, what's that? You're back tomorrow, right? Uh, yeah. Well, yeah, I am back tomorrow, actually. Um, this is a great trip. Uh, just one leg today, two tomorrow, uh, two the next day, and then home on Thursday morning. So, um, And this is a wonderful time of year to fly into Syracuse. You can't believe how nice this 72 degrees feels for someone who has been exposed to 96, 97 degrees in Atlanta. It's just so hot. We can't wait. I think later this week we're supposed to get a little bit of, bit of a break. Anyway, um, you didn't listen for a weather forecast. So, But speaking of the weather here in Syracuse in the, in the wintertime, I have a lot of experience flying in and out of Syracuse. I used to fly the 727 in and out of here all the time in the winter. Syracuse, Rochester, Albany, uh, Portland, all these uh, places that are just lovely in the wintertime. <laughs> Sarcasm. Anyway, so it uh, looks like dessert is showing up here. So I'm going to end this. Back to you, Jeff, in the studio. Thanks for the throw. And here we are back in the studio. Uh, yeah, great time. I uh, was able to meet up with uh, Stefan uh, last night again. And we went to a uh, Japanese uh, place. So had a nice meal. 
And uh, Tom was busy taking a flying lesson and also taking up his daughter, who is a brand new flight attendant for JetBlue, who was uh, able to come back into town. And she rode in the back seat, and I think she has some interest in becoming a pilot. So that's pretty cool. So great time. Uh, interestingly, Stefan um, is a CFII, I believe, and uh, he's uh, one of the instructors at the Syracuse Flying Club. And Tom, uh, just joined up, as you heard in this uh, audio, and talking about a, a small world, I, I'm not sure that they had ever met each other until uh, our meetup on Monday night. So now they're fast friends. So there you go. Um, good time. And we're having a great time here in Portland with Micah. Thank you, Micah. I, I look forward to our, pleasure. our dining after we finish the recording. And... I'm on my next on the next slide up cause, <laughs> just because I know how good it is. Yeah. And uh, that is pretty much all for me. So pretty boring. And now we go to Captain Nick. I think he has something more, much more interesting to talk about. Doesn't he always? And he's on mute. Still on mute. Not only was I on mute, I had a program covering up oh. <laughs> the mute button, so I could go oh. out to apologize. No problem. Uh, not brilliant, not brilliant. Um, yeah, uh, we've had a nice busy time, actually. Thanks very much. Uh, it's been great fun. So um, what happened was uh, shortly after we um, finished the sh one show, but one, two shows ago, um, uh, Stefan Justice uh, flew out uh, to stay with me. Now, they pitched up, and you'll probably hear all about their uh, exploits next time Steph's on the show. Um, but uh, they basically uh, came down here and stayed with me so that uh, they could use uh, our place as a base while they visited uh, the Goodwood Festival of uh, uh uh, revival, the Goodwood Revival. I keep wanting to call it the Festival for Speed, but it's a different event. And uh, they, uh, everyone dresses up in costume, and there's a lot of old cars there, a lot of classic machines. Um, uh, Justice was terribly impressed that he could sort of walk through and, uh, you know, get within touching distance uh, of cars multi-million pound cars so uh, he thought that was just fantastic and uh, each day they dolled themselves up into a different outfit and went off and enjoyed themselves managed to get a little uh, dinner party together with uh, nev and sue and uh, matt from uh, pt uk uh, so we had a nice uh, dinner and then uh, i saw them off uh, on their aircraft. Uh, well, I waved goodbye to them. They drove themselves to the airport on Monday. Uh, uh, since then, nothing much really, uh, except of course the show today. I'm still working on uh, my presentation to the uh, Royal Aeronautical Society uh, Coventry University a week today. Um, so I'm hoping to finish that uh, either tomorrow or early next week. Um, and over the weekend, of course, uh, we've got that lovely meetup uh, in Germany at Frankfurt Airport uh, and nearby. Uh, so going there to uh, um, meet um, Marcus uh, and I think Stefan and, and someone else, Jeff. Ollie, probably, I think. Um, who are, are podcasters. That's right, Ollie. Yeah, cheers. 
uh, all podcasters. And as I understand it, there's someone very special flying out from the States to join us. So that's on the t- Saturday the 21st. Uh, any idea who that person would be? Who? I might actually show up. Who's flying, a, especially flying across yeah, from the I'm, States. I'm, I'm hoping, <laughs> fingers crossed, that I'll be flying over. The uh, number of seats keeps getting smaller and smaller, and uh, now they look like they're getting close to an oversold situation. So I may not be uh, oh, there. Okay. Well, we've <laughs> so got, we'll see. <laughs> and then, got our fingers crossed. If I make it over there, then I hopefully will be able to make it back because I have a trip that leaves on Monday. Ah, well, yes, was, you don't want to end up stranded here, do you? That's what I was going to say. There's only one problem with going is you have to come back, too. That is yeah, true. Good point. So we'll yeah. see. I'm, right. sure you, I'm sure you could get a job here in the UK. No problem. <laughs> 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 Might have to. <laughs> exactly. So uh, I've been yeah, busy. I uh, move, move up in seniority. Maybe you might. Hey, Jeff, go, please. Dana might be trying, but that thing has fallen through. Yeah, I'm, I'm not going to drop my trip for it. It's just the flights are too tight. Yeah. Danny, just got to yeah. pay your dues. I've been around here for more than almost 31 years. Um, I'm, not far be- I'm not far behind you, Jeff. Really? Just how not, many years have you not, been with Acme? I, I've been uh, around Acme since 91. No, oh, but I mean, as a pilot, pilot yeah. <laughs> as a pilot since yeah. 07. But I've been, <laughs> okay. I've been involved in the organization since 01. Okay. Uh, I'm 91. So, but that's all right. Continue. I'm sorry. Okay. Well, very good. Um, so that's yeah. it really from me. Uh, I'm, uh, I've got myself uh, well uh, sorted out for uh, this week, uh, and uh, hopefully uh, we can get a show in that's not on Wednesday uh, next week. Otherwise, I won't be available. Yeah, you know what? I don't think I'm going to be available next Wednesday either. I got to tell you, I certainly hope you won't be available next Wednesday because we have plans if it works out the way that we hope, and that is that uh, Max Flight the producer extraordinaire of the Airplane Geeks will be coming up this way. And we're going to pick up Jeff on Wednesday, drive up to Lewiston, Maine, where we will be visiting the Collings Foundation and their uh, Wings over uh, Wings of Freedom tour. And up in Lewiston, Maine, they're flying in their B-17, their B-24 Liberator, their B-25 Mitchell, the P-51 Mustang, and aircraft I've always wanted to see, I've never seen in person, P-40 Warhawk, Flying Tiger. So we're hoping to pick up Jeff and uh, and go up there. And we even have its thing set up for uh, flights on one of those aircraft if space is available. So hoping we're going to get Jeff in the air on a Warhawk war, and a Warbird. Just one? We only get to fly on one? <laughs> I'll be happy if I uh, just get to go up there with you and Max and look at airplanes. Hey, um, Jeff. Yes. Yes, um, I've demoted myself to first officer. I'm gonna be picking up that trip so I can go with you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, I'm looking forward to it. It's a great trip, by the way. It's another one, two, two, one, uh, with two layovers in uh, Portland, Maine, and uh, with a uh, Providence in the middle. And uh, I am so looking forward to uh, hanging with uh, Max Flight and Main Man Micah as we drive up to Lewiston. It sounds good. Don't you always fly space available, Jeff? Yes, I fly in any space that's available. <laughs> oh, I'm hearing a, um, what is that from? Just started. Hang on. Let's see if it's this. Yeah. Interesting how this whole time this cord plugged into my iPad has not made any noise at all. And Did it hit the, did it hit the full charge? Would that have known? Uh, oh, I wonder. I bet you're right. You have a cord that makes a noise? No, it's only 91%. Well, how weird is that? 
the uh, charging uh, of the iPad makes a noise through the audio jack, to be exact. Uh, yeah, wait a minute. Or maybe the cord is making a noise. Nah, I don't hear anything. Stick it in your ear and see. <laughs> Thanks for your advice, Nick. <laughs> okay, so, um, yeah, well, more on that. We're not sure when we're gonna, when we're going to record next week, but uh, I am looking forward to, uh, as I said, hang out with uh, you and Max next week and look at some more birds and oh. possibly flying one. That'd be a lot of fun. Ray in the chat room says it must be a vocal cord. Ah. <laughs> oh, Ray. You're very yeah. clever. <laughs> Speaking of very clever, he had a uh, suggestion for our news screen because uh, I talked about it. You know, we should when we're playing the news bumper, we should have a, you know, like some of these fancy pants uh, video podcasts out there. Um, and uh, he he suggested that I do a search for GNUS news. You know, kind of like that. Good news. Yeah. Good news. <laughs> Yeah, anyway, it was a lot more funny when he told it. Isn't that what you say in Australia? <laughs> good news, mate? Good news, mate. Might. Yeah. All right, that's it for catching up with each other. And now we need to talk to you about something very important, and that's your way to become involved in the financial, financial support of the show. We call it the Coffee Fund. Johnny, how much more coffee? No thanks. I love coffee. I love tea. I love the, the APG, APG community. Coffee and tea and the Java and me. A cup, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup. All right. I always enjoy uh, singing with fellow co-hosts in person. Sing along with Micah. Hey, the Coffee Fund, it's our, your way to support the show financially if you have the financial resources to do so and a couple different ways to do it first is the coffee fund classic method and that's via paypal basically and you can do a one-time contribution over there or a recurring contribution as terry Liu does so thank you terry we got your uh, recurring contribution and the other way to do it is to become a producer via patreon or become a patron of the show and since the last episode we don't have any new patrons but that's okay because we have a bunch of great people out there who are patrons of the show who really help us out with the uh, financial outlays that we make for providing this show for free for everybody out there so again thank you for all of you who have taken ownership in the show and have uh, contributed financially and if you want to learn more about how you can do it, you can head over to airlinepilotguide.com slash coffee. You'll be glad you did. So will we. Captain, incoming message. Hey, let's start with the first item in our feedback folder. And it just so happens to be audio feedback. Here we go. Hello, APG crew. This is Miklos from Switzerland. I had the uh, distinct pleasure to meet uh, Captain Jeff, Hilal, and Liz at Oshkosh a couple of weeks ago, where I showed up at the trailer completely uninvited, and um, you guys still asked me in for some drinks, and we had a nice long chat. 
I hope to meet the rest of the team at some other occasion. You've also encouraged me to send in some feedback. And uh, I wanted to tell you a little bit about what I'm up to. I am um, 42 years old with two children and I'd like to become an airline pilot. Now, uh, why would anyone in their right mind want to do that, especially at that age? As a child, I basically had two dreams of what I want to become. I either wanted to work in film or I wanted to become an airline pilot. And I was very lucky that for the past 14 years, I was uh, able to work in the visual effects industry doing uh, what you would call CGI for feature films and commercials. Unfortunately, that uh, industry went into a decline here in Switzerland and I had to move on and I started to think about what to do next. And really the only thing that came to my mind was that I wanted to become an airline pilot. I've done my PPL a couple of years ago and um, I figured that, you know, I still have quite a few steps in my training left, but it, it would be doable. So in uh, September 2018, I've signed up for my ATPL theory course, which is this grueling 14 exam exercise that every uh, airline pilot here in Europe needs to go through. And I started studying for that um, while working full time. And um, I'm very happy to report that just a couple of weeks ago, I was able to finish the last of the 14 exams. Currently, I'm in my CPL training. I just got an hour or two left of that, and then I will move on to the multi-engine part and the instrument part, which I'm very much looking forward to. The reason I'm telling you all this is because I've been listening to the show since around episode 80 or 90, I think, and it's been such a huge source of inspiration and information. It has definitely influenced my decision to go forward with my training. But uh, don't worry, I won't blame you if it doesn't work out. Um, I still have a plan B, uh, which is probably not a bad idea to have in aviation in general. So thank you so much for everything that you're doing. And I'm very much looking forward to many more years of excellent aviation podcasting. I'll keep you posted. All the best. Bye-bye. Thanks, Miklos, for your aviation story. And yeah, we had a great time uh, chatting with you in the RV at uh, Oshkosh, and it's so exciting to hear uh, of people like you with this kind of uh, um, mid-life career change, and uh, we hope that you're successful with it. It's fantastic. It's great to hear, you know, stories like that. People are changing mid-career and, and uh, making the jump because, you know, it's exactly what I did, and I encourage it. You know, you, you can't live in the past and, and live in fear. If you don't take chances, you never get, you know, you never move forward. So if it's something you, you've uh, always wanted to do, great. And don't don't live with regrets because if you don't take the chance, you'll never know. So congratulations. Yeah, excellent that you've uh, finished those 14 theory exams. That's a hell of a hurdle to pass and uh, a lot of, lot, lot of cramming required to get through that. So good job there, sir. And uh, I will keep my fingers firmly crossed for your uh, multi and instrument training to come. But by the sounds of it, you're well on the road. And uh, I reckon uh, you should be all... Uh, finished up and uh, probably sitting in the uh, right-hand seat of some outfit 
before you're 45, which should give you 20 years. And that's a pretty good uh, length of uh, career for a pilot, uh, certainly as a second career. So uh, good luck, and I hope it all works out for you. 20 years is a heck of a run, I'd say. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Please do keep us uh, in touch with uh, your progress, Miklos. And yeah, those 14 exams, that's just crazy. You know, if we had 14 exams that we had to take, Dana, here in the States, I'm not sure I'd be an airline pilot. <laughs> I wouldn't either. I, I would have given up a long time ago. <laughs> I was ago. like, uh, no, I'm going to have to find something easier. Of course, it's really hard to figure out what would be easier. Well, the reward, you know, the the... the <laughs> The reward at the end of the, the rainbow, as one would say, uh, is well, well worth it. I mean, it's hard work. Yeah. Uh, so in the end, probably in hindsight, 2020, you know, if we didn't know any different at that point, we probably would have gone through with it because we just love what we do so much. That's true. I certainly I, I certainly jumped through a lot of hoops. I mean, I went to four years of college, worked, you know, four jobs, put myself through school so I could afford to be able to, you know, live this dream. Mm-hmm. So, you know. You know, exams. Yeah, I took a lot of exams, college exams, uh, so I could be here. So it's it's uh, you know, my hats off to you. Excellent, uh, excellent choice to to uh, come into the industry, and uh, you know, it's a lot of hard work. And, and no, no, no job anywhere is easy. Everything you do in life always has its challenges. It's just a matter of you know overcoming those challenges and making it happen for yourself. And if everything was easy, it wouldn't you know, yeah. it wouldn't be as rewarding. Everybody could do it. Yeah, if it was easy, everybody could do it. And uh, you know, our job, quite frankly, although a lot of people on the outside don't understand, it, it's really truly a uh, a fun job, an enjoyable job, one of the best jobs in the world, in my opinion. Uh, however, it's a very challenging job and, and very very difficult uh, job to do at times. Um, in, in, until you become very comfortable uh, in the aircraft, and even when I stepped over to be captain, uh, you know, even though I've been flying the airplane for a very long time. Uh, you know, there's still a very steep learning curve and there's a lot to learn and there's a lot to be responsible for. So that's that's what we love about, the, you know, it's what I love about my job. Certainly. And even even after you become comfortable, there are times when it's still challenging and uh, gets your gets your heart rate up, your adrenaline sure. flowing and uh, just one, one of those kind of jobs. But we love it. Yeah, we love it. We love we love to do it. And, uh, you know, congratulations. I mean, just uh, just really, really proud of everything you've done uh, to get where we're where you're at and you say miklos is that correct is that how you say miklos, it? i think miklos miklos, miklos. So, congratulations yeah. um you know as long as we're on the subject of possible career switching or career switchers uh we got this in uh, number eight from andy he says dear jeff and apg crew my name's andy a relatively new listener to the show thank you so much for the awesome podcast it must be really hard having a group of friends that get together, drink beer, and talk aviation for a few hours each week. So I commend your brave efforts. <laughs> Thank you. I think it really does appreciate all the hard work that goes into this. <laughs> I'm a current PPL with about 83 hours. I was able to do my ground school through college and get credit for it. Seemed like a no-brainer. I originally wanted to be a professional pilot, but when I started looking at careers in high school, the job market wasn't doing well, so I went for engineering instead. Now I'm in sales because everyone said I should do it because I can talk someone's ear off about just about anything until they make me stop. <laughs> Makes him a great pilot now. <laughs> yeah, you'd be a good pilot too. <laughs> yeah. Maybe maybe I would be good a good fit for the show? <laughs> Wait a minute. <laughs> 
Is that what they call a backhanded compliment? <laughs> I think it is. Possibly. Yes. And it is good money. However, I definitely caught the bug at the end of my college career when I finished up my PPL. Haven't stopped thinking about a career as a pilot since. I just turned 25. Oh, he's so old. 25. It's way over the hill. Yeah. So I still have some good years left in me. A lot. And don't feel I'd be too far behind the seniority curve. Question about that in a minute. Now I just need to figure out financing for an accelerated program. Uh, if any of you have $45,000 burning a hole in your pockets, let me know and I can help you, quote, invest it. Hang on. Let me let me get my wallet. Yeah, uh, I have $20. That's it. I only have... I have twenty thousand. Nick, do you have the do you have the rest that you can help out with? Yeah, but it's three hundred percent annual interest. Sorry, forty four cents. Oh, yeah, Micah has forty four cents. That's not really going to help. Anyway, um, uh, that being said, I have a few questions that I'd love to have anyone weigh in on, except Dana. If they're too long or whatever, no worries. No, I'm just kidding. He didn't put that there. I, I read just... it before, so I know that's not in there. <laughs> but you have the different version than I have. Yeah. What are we doing here? The Jeff-edited oh, version. That's for my Oh, okay. All that being said, I have a few questions that I'd love to have anyone weigh in on. Okay, what was that? Hang on. Let me turn off the notifications over here on my computer. Yeah, this is uh, Slack, I think. Hello. Hey, Siri. <laughs> yeah. Hang on. Let me close it. There we go. Okay. I'm going to try this paragraph one more time. All that being said, I have a few questions that I'd love to have anyone weigh in on. If they're too long or whatever, no worries at all, and any advice is great. Number one, family is everything to me, and one of my main concerns with entering a pilot career is uh, someone in my family falls ill, and I'm needed to be there. My parents aren't old or anything, but the circle of life will come around, and I want to be there for them when needed. How do the airlines work with pilots on family matters such as these? I'll go ahead and... Uh, just do all the questions. Let's just take one question at a time. What do you think? Uh, yeah, one at a time would be good. That's that. That I way it keeps it fresh. That first question is uh, one that I think is highly dependent upon the company for which you're working. Now, Dana and I can tell you that, at least in my opinion, Acme does a pretty good job of making sure that they support you in your personal matters uh, when you know, you're flying with them, and um, if you know your your wife's pregnant, and the or something happens, uh, some kind of injury or you know hardship in your family, they they do really, at least in my experience, this is anecdotal evidence. Uh, they really work hard with you to make sure that you're okay and that they support you in any way they can. For instance, when you lose, uh, like when I lost my mother and uh, then my sister just three months after that, back in 2015. Uh, they were just amazingly helpful to me with, uh, you know, changing my schedule and making sure that, you know, everything was um, set up properly and, and I could deal with the whole thing. And they said, you know, just take your time coming back, you know, because there's more to, you know, a, a, a 
loss of life in your family than just getting the time off and being there for the, for, for the funeral. But there's also emotional and mental um, baggage uh, along with that as well. And they were very insistent that, you know, I don't come back until I was ready to fly again. Um, so um, I, I really you know, feel strongly that the company for which I work uh, does a pretty good job with that. Uh, I would imagine I've heard stories from other people working for other companies that basically is the opposite, you know, that they, uh, you're on your own when it comes to family matters. But I think I was really, my timing was really good when it came to the birth of all three of my children, two of them, the last two, while I was a, an employee at Acme Airlines. And it just worked out. Be, I had scheduled um, my vacations for around the time that the, the babies were due. And uh, it just worked that I was, I just happened to be home when all these things happened. So I was uh, very fortunate as an airline pilot to be home for the birth of all three of my children. Uh, the first one was when I was in the Air Force. So um, that was a, a no-brainer. I was, wasn't on long trips or anything. The Air Force isn't quite as considerate. No, well, no. probably not. But fortunately, I was working as a flight instructor and, and uh, I wasn't away in some other part of the world. So yeah, it may have been a different story if I'd been on that kind of a mission. Um, but uh, that's my experience. Uh, what would you say, Dana? Well, you know, I'm in 100% agreement with you. Uh, everything that I've experienced and seen, and I've, you know, as you know, I worked uh, behind the scenes for quite a bit, uh, has been nothing but positive. Uh, and I think a big part of that is that they don't want you uh, operating an aircraft if you're not mentally uh, really capable of doing it because, you know, if you're forced to come in, then guess what? You're going to be completely and totally distracted, which adds to the possibility of, of an event. So that's, I think, a, a bigger portion of why the company is so supportive uh, because they their their number one philosophy at Acme is uh, a safety and a safety culture. So it, it, by doing anything else other than supporting you during the time of need, uh, when you have family tragedy or something, you know, major major life event going on in your life, uh, it would be quite contrary to that, that belief, I believe. So uh, my experience is exactly the same. So I'm, I'm not going to belabor it any more than that. Very good. Nick, what say you? My outfit was uh, absolutely brilliant. Uh, they put a great store behind uh, that kind of aspect. Uh, and I've uh, had guys, uh, you know, um, just been put on aircraft, flown halfway around the world as fast as uh, is conceivably possible to get to uh, loved ones who had problems. Uh, and I think part of it is uh, due to the strong safety culture. Uh, if someone's away on a trip uh, and uh, they know something bad is going on at home and they really feel they need to be there, they're not in the right frame of mind to continue to operate, particularly if it's going to take a day or two to get back. They need to get back uh, as soon as possible. Uh, and it's not really safe to have them uh, on the flight deck doing a normal uh, trip and expect them to be able to keep their mind on their work. So I think that was part of it. Uh, so the two combined made us a great airline. But you're right, Jeff, I don't think they're uh, are many airlines that can boast that uh, level of concern. You'll find, particularly um, when you start flying, uh, a lot of the airlines you'll be working for, they just want one thing. They just want your backside in the seat doing your job, and they don't really care about much else. But uh, uh, it's it might be a factor for you when you come to pick the airline you're going to stick with for the uh, a good portion of your career. So choose carefully. 
yeah, that should be a major factor in your decision to, you know, which one you try to go for. Of course, it may not be out of your out of your hands at that point, but you know, you know, and, and one of the biggest things is that nowadays with the internet, there's so much information out there about the culture of each individual company, and you know that you can weigh into any factor as to whether you want to go work for that company, and and you know. Are they the only operator that's available? Are they the only one that's going to offer you a job? You know, those are things that you that you have to take into consideration. But I certainly wouldn't make a career choice based on that uh, that future decision. Just, I would definitely go for it. Just a little background note for those that are only listening. Uh, before we move on to the next question, if there's any background noise, it's because you'll be hearing me put the taking the meatloaf out of the oven to put the bacon on it and it's just got to be done and i apologize for the background noise but just want to let everyone know what's happening you're making me so hungry i thought we talked about the fact that we didn't want you playing with the meatloaf uh, your meatloaf while we were recording i thought i just couldn't play with your meatloaf well that's yeah no public playing with the meatloaf (laughs) please you'll just have to you you should i wish that you could smell what i'm smelling in this wonder this kitchen that we're in I can it only imagine. Ah, oh, I can't well, wait. I think He's such a fantastic like, chef. I think that uh, lawmaker from uh, um, <laughs> we Nairobi. don't want to be smelling what she was smelling. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, look at this right now. Uh, <laughs> oh man, that meatloaf looks awesome. It smells oh, great. Oh my god! <laughs> hey Jeff, any chance you can bring a slice home with you tomorrow, and I can meet you in the crew lounge? <laughs> uh, really? You really want to drive all the way down to the crew lounge? Well, I'm going to be there anyways. Are you? When are yeah. you gonna be there? Uh, oh, that's a good question. Let's see. What time do I? Well, while he's while he's looking that up, uh, the other thing I wanted to add to the question, the first question that Annie had, uh, is that also a lot of, at, you know, when you first start out, you're you're not going to have any seniority at all, and you're not going to be able to really do much with <laughs> your schedule and you know control of your of your schedule. That's one of the things about seniority that is just amazingly good, um, but. As you gain some some seniority, you can pick certain airplanes that you fly and, uh, you know, to try to fly trips that maybe aren't gone as many days uh, at a time or even try to get into if your if your airline offers seniority pilots to uh, be involved in the uh, training department and become a simulator uh, instructor, um, you know, which is, you know, it's a kind of a competitive thing. But if you are determined to do that, you can be home every night, basically. Except the times where you know the months where you're um, going out on trips and such, but there there are ways that you can kind of control uh, your uh, your life in that respect if you have other things going on. Uh, so that's just something I thought I'd throw that at, I'd throw out as well. Seniority is king, isn't yeah. it? Yes. <laughs> um, item number two. With the pilot shortage and the increasing number of mandatory retirements coming up in the next 10 years or so, do you see some primarily senior bases becoming more junior as this happens? I live in Denver. Everyone and their cousins are moving here. I'm pretty sure it's one of the most senior bases for airlines hubbed here. But with mandatory retirements coming up, do you think there's a chance of me finding a way to be based here if and when I get to the majors? And if uh, this question isn't just, just specifically... Denver. I'm just using that as an example. So, in my in my view, in general, the bases that are senior, regardless of what's happening with retirements and everything else, are the ones that probably are going to stay senior. Would you agree with that, Dana? Uh, yes and no. I've seen some changes in that actually. 
uh, especially now that we're, we're hiring a lot of junior people. So, um, but generally speaking, yeah, the, the more senior bases tend to stay that way. Whereas, you know, a New York type base will always be a junior base. Uh, Newark included in that, you know, depending on what airline you're talking about regarding Denver. Um, and, uh, you know, that's, that's always a gamble. You know, you've, you've got to decide at certain, at, at a certain point at, you know, what's your better, what's your best seniority, where it's going to take you. Uh, are you willing to commute? Are you willing to, you know, make that sacrifice in life and commute? Or do you want to live in base? And if you're tied to one specific area, uh, whether it be Chicago or Denver or, you know, San Francisco or, you know, Atlanta or wherever it may be, you know, the major hub basis for most of the uh, airlines uh, in this country, um, you know, you've got to make that decision personally, whether you want to be in that those locations or whether you won't want to commute. And that would play, I think, in, in a very large way into which airline you try to get hired with. Um, but, you know, I, I, I've seen it go both ways. I mean, you know, Seattle used to be a very, very, very senior base. And I think in the last AE, I'm not sure if I, I, I think it could hold it or was it Salt Lake as a captain? Both very, very senior oh, bases. Um, yeah. And Seattle, uh, certainly for forever, I could not hold it as a first officer. Uh, now I'm a very relatively senior first officer if I was willing to go back and go up to Seattle. So, you know, those, that's a, always been historically very senior base. So, uh, the hub bases tend to be the more senior ones though. And then, you, you know, the cost of living bases that, that are a little bit lower cost, uh, going to be a much more preferred basis uh, overall, I think. Good point. I think, you know, if, if where you live is an important thing for you, as Dana says, you know, if you can't get based there because of seniority issues, there's always that uh, possibility of commuting. But that also has, you know, its negatives. <laughs> Major drawbacks. Yeah. But, you know, it just depends on, you know, what your priorities are. Um, if if putting up with commuting lifestyle is, um, you know, allows you to live where you want to live and it's important enough for you to do that, then, you know, you could do that. That's one of the beautiful things about this job, I think. It's exactly, I'm sorry, and then interrupt you, but that was exactly what I was going to say is, you know, unlike most careers and most jobs, unless, you know, you're in high demand executive or some, or, you know, somebody in high demand in certain businesses uh, that, are, you know, the company is willing to fly you back and forth uh, wherever you happen to live and choose to live. I mean, my neighbor right across the street, she works out of the D.C. area and every week they fly her up there. So she lives here in Atlanta where she prefers to live. And she fortunately works for a company that will pause the space her back and forth. But that is a rare thing. Uh, in our business, we are very fortunate in that we can go ahead and have that ability to have the option of commuting uh, and to be able to live in different uh, areas. And, you know, seniority has a lot to play in that. I mean, if you're a junior first officer on reserve and you get stuck at the bottom, kind of like I did uh, after, uh, you know, uh, the uh, 9-11 events. And then, of course, uh, you know, once they raised the age of 65, so those 10 years of basically stalling. I was a junior first officer for five years on reserve. So do, do you want to commute to reserve for five years? And these are, these are possibilities. I'm not saying this is what's going to happen, uh, but I have to, you know, I, it would be, I would be remiss not to mention that there are always the possibilities that right now, Hey, listen, we're going gangbusters. I mean, people are getting hired uh, over the last couple of years and now halfway up the scenario list in their airplane, 
right? So the seniority is booming, but there's nothing to say. I mean, look at what happened this past week with the, uh, I'm not talking, you know, world events, but, you know, it can change the, the, the fabric of, of the industry really quick and what happened in Saudi Arabia. So these are all unforeseen circumstances that can affect that going forward. So you have to, even though you want to have these answers, you have to kind of go in with, into it with a, in an open mind and understand that, you know, this is what you plans, what you plan for. Uh, but being 25 years old, my God, you have an entire career ahead of you. So, uh, I wouldn't. I wouldn't base my 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 entire decisions based on what is today. Other than the future looks really bright. Yeah. Good point. Uh, item three. Finally, everyone says a recession is looming, which I'm not an economist, so I have no clue if it's true or not. I feel like people have been pra- uh, predicting this for years. Let's say it happens anyway. Tough luck, but it will at some point. See, he's pretty smart. He understands that uh, the financial situations. Uh, it's a cyclical thing. And it will happen again, and there will be bad times again in the airlines. Anyway, back to his question. I know airlines will sometimes reverse flow you to the regional if majors are slowing down, but just wanted your input on that. Now, I don't think that that's something that happens at uh, Dana and my airline where, you know, if the the economy slowed down and we started working backwards, I don't think there's any opportunity for us to go back to any of the regional carriers that are part of the Acme system. So I'm not sure where that happens, but, um, you know, I guess if you're working for one of those companies, that's a good thing. But, uh, yeah, not, not here. If, if, uh, everything goes backwards and things start, uh, as you say, reverse flow, that means you're going to be furloughed and out of work and you're going to have to go with plan B or plan C. To answer his, his, his question, uh, a little more directly from my personal experience, um, Andy, I I have to be honest with you when, when the, after September uh, 11th occurred and the airline industry basically came to a complete and total halt, uh, there were a lot of people that got either, uh, stopgapped or, 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 you know, furloughed, um, and no, there's not a flow back that I'm aware of. I mean, I don't know what the current agreement is with some of the flow ups. Uh, there may be some flow back, and I know there was one at one point that was a flow back as well. Um, I don't remember which airline it was. I'm not going to be specific on it, but I do know it existed. However, uh, when I got hired at ASA, uh, Acme Regional Carrier, most of my class actually was uh, furloughed Acme pilots. So we had a lot of furlough pilots. So what they did is they took care of their own. Now, there's another company based out of Cincinnati that no longer exists that said, uh, no, but no, but uh, the other word, H-E-L-L, no, uh, that they were not going to help out our, our, our pilots and offer them positions. So there is that possibility. Uh, however, uh, you know, our company was very smart in what they did, and they, they maintained market presence, even though it was smaller aircraft, which allowed us to grow to the point that we're at right now. So, uh, anything's possible. Any input on that uh, at all, Nick? No, it's just that uh, a recession in one part of the world is often not reflected in another. Of course, if it's a global recession, then forget all that. We're all screwed. But um, if you're willing to up sticks and move, there are flying jobs usually to be had uh, somewhere in the world. Uh, you may not have to do it for long. Uh, one uh, During 9-11, Dana mentions our outfit uh, uh, had to uh, make uh, a number of pilots uh, 
redundant, but they found jobs for them in other airlines, which was great. Uh, and uh, they were given the opportunity, uh, depending on um, how they chose to leave, um, whether they wanted to keep their seniority number with uh, my outfit. Uh, so that when uh, they were recruiting again, they could slide back in and they would be the seniority they were when they left. That was one of the conditions. But that obviously some people chose not to do that and, uh, uh, you know, intake full redundancy, et cetera, et cetera. There are various packages on offer. So, But, um, you know, there, there are jobs generally in somewhere in the world, even if it's uh, out of Mongolia. You can usually get a flying job there, no problem. Nick, isn't that incredibly generous to allow someone to go under a situation like that and then come back with remaining seniority? That sounds truly unreal and very praiseworthy. Not really, uh, Micah, because, of course, uh, by doing so, they uh, got a much reduced redundancy package. So as far as the company were concerned, they were saving money. It didn't really make a lot of difference to the company where they slotted in seniority when they came back. They were just another pilot. made a difference to the other pilots, of course, because having left, uh, they moved up in seniority. When these guys came back, they moved back down again. Um, but uh, no, I don't think it's a fact the company saved money doing that. All right. Uh, thanks for that input, Nick. And uh, item four, kind of on that same note. Do certain, Wait a minute. He said the last one's finally. So should we l- allow him one more question? No. Okay. Yes. Let's move on. There, there only supposed to be one question per email. <laughs> you know the rules, Jeff. Yeah, well, Andy's a new listener. He doesn't know that you can't a- uh, ask this many questions in one feedback. But oh, okay. we're letting it slide this time, Andy. But you've Fair been warned. Can you guys still hear me even though I'm frozen? We do hear you, but we don't see okay. your video. I don't understand that. Okay. I'll stay. Okay. Uh, kind of on that same note, do certain degrees give you more of an advantage at the airline level in terms of application? For example, engineering degree versus, say, an English degree versus an aviation-specific degree. I'm not trying to discourage anyone's choices in schooling or anything. Personally, I hated engineering. Me too. Uh, But it is a good degree to have, in my opinion. So just wondering if that would potentially give me a slight competitive advantage, especially when, if hiring slows at the regionals. Yeah, we've we've covered this. Uh, I know, Andy, you you probably haven't caught the APG syndrome which means that you go back and listen to all the shows, <laughs> all 391 of them. And there's going to be a test. Yes. But uh, we have covered this many, many times. And our answer to that question is it doesn't really matter what kind of degree you have as far as getting hired by the company you're trying to get hired by. Uh, having a degree could make a difference. And as far as I know, most of the majors here in the U.S. are still requiring it, uh, but it's just a degree, not necessarily what field the, the degree is in. Now, that this may differ for different airlines or different countries and you know what, what they require or what is going to give you a competitive advantage, but we always say here at the APG, get your college degree, get it in something that will be your plan B, and, and uh, hopefully it's something that you're interested in doing. In case your your dream of becoming an airline pilot uh, doesn't pan out, uh, should you Underwater get that water basket weaving? That's uh, that's a good one. I was going to say, should you get that degree in uh, Fahrenheit or Celsius? Wow, 
<laughs> I'm not wow. sure that even deserved a rim shot, but wait a minute. I think it more it it, it deserves this. Wow. <laughs> wow. Haven't you got that trombone? <laughs> oh yeah, wait. Yeah. Where's the trombone? We got the <laughs> fail <laughs> horn. Like this will have to do because I don't know where the trombone is. Is that the one you're talking about? Yep. That's okay. The one. Okay, good. Uh so yeah. Uh no, I wouldn't worry about what if you get your degree in engineering or aviation. I mean I have a degree in aviation management, but it's not such an important thing that it was aviation management. Acme didn't care really. They just you know, the the degree filled the box, you know, checked the box uh and set me apart for, from somebody that did not have a degree. Now that could change. And again, as I say, uh, it may be a different situation um, in other parts of the world and the way they hire people. Uh, in fact, I think it actually does make a difference maybe in some other areas. So that's the best we can do. But if you're planning on trying to get a job here in the U.S. and with a major airline, uh, again, I don't really think it matters what your degree is in. And as Nick said, one of his favorite uh, selections would be underwater basket weaving. Is that what you said? Yeah, yeah. Very useful degree, that one. Yes. I mean, Dana is a professional, well, not professional, but an underwater photographer. And so making the leap from underwater photography to underwater basket weaving is not a big one. Well, the good thing is I have really good buoyancy. So that would be you know, a very easy thing for me to do. There you go. Okay. So I, I remember the old story of uh, a university in the gentleman's toilets uh, uh, just above where the uh, toilet roll was, uh, there was a sign that said, sociology degrees, please take one. <laughs> <laughs> but bam, that does deserve a rim shot. Okay, there's a ton of information to go over here, and I realize that some of this could pot potentially warrant its own three-hour episode. Yeah, thanks, Andy. You basically covered the entire segment that we the time that we had allotted for the good night thanks for uh no i'm just kidding um <laughs> i listened to a couple of other podcasts that are more career advice oriented and these questions haven't been answered from what i've listened to so i'm hoping that the answers given will help a lot of people out there thank you so much for the great show and all the the advice i did a ton of training in atlanta just uh, last year for work before i started listening but would have loved to have met up but if any of you are in the Denver area, please reach out. There's a brewery every 50 feet you walk, so I'm sure most of you would do well. <laughs> kind of like a Starbucks every 50 feet, right? And Captain Dana, there's a whiskey distillery here called Stranahan's that does tours, and I've been looking for the perfect reason to go. I'm on my way. Well, <laughs> we don't go there anymore. We used to. Well, we don't go to Denver anymore, huh? No, we do not. I oh. haven't seen anything in Denver anymore. I have two El Paso layovers coming up next month. That's because Bob Wait. Seeger said we better get out of Denver, better go. Ah. ah. Good there. thing I have the soundboard right in front of me with a rim shot in a place where I know where it is. <laughs> anyway. Well, it's because you use it plenty this evening. I know I have. Anyway, best regards to all the crew, Andy. So, Andy, hope that helped. And... Uh, Without further ado, I think it's time now for us to head over to this week's installment, which is the best part of the show, the old pilot's plane tales. Yay. This week, well-defined.
The Old Pilot's Plain Tales Well Defined Our lives in aviation are defined by definitions, so that we all know exactly what we're talking about. Whether it be an instruction, an aircraft part, or perhaps a flying technique. None of us want to be misunderstood and put the speed brakes out instead of calling the galley for more coffee. So the last thing we want are words with more than one meaning, if you know what I mean. How on earth, then, do we have so many double entendres, innuendos, and that's my endo, if you don't mind, in aviation? Some people might call them punny, but at the risk of using homophonous language, and before you write in, a homophone, or homophone, or, oh, well, I don't know, uh, is a word pronounced the same, but with a different meaning. Uh, I think we should sort it all out so there's no confusion with wordplay, and let's be sure we don't engage in any homophony or use oronyms, if you prefer, since it means the same, and go into the deep end, or deep end. Talk about ice cream instead of I scream. The sky instead of this guy and have fork handles instead of four candles uh, or mention minute instead of my newt who i might add is called fred and often found as drunk as a lord sadly there may be a little confusion across the pond as not everything i say translates accurately into foreign languages such as american and i'm going to try and avoid some of the worst that's what she said moments by not mentioning obvious ones such as that sly irish airline cunning lingus and the old twa joke of serving twa coffee or twa tea uh, let us begin the journey across the sea of language with aircraft parts and the game is to try and find the word before I get to it at the end of each definition. This one is easy. It means to beat, flutter, agitate, wave, wag, waggle, shake, swing or twitch. It can be confused with panicking, getting flustered, but the last thing we want for you to do is get into a... Flap. Neither do we want you to smoke something that is often used for recreational purposes and may be illegal in many places, and you shouldn't use it on a racehorse to inhibit or enhance performance either, or you might be described as a fool, idiot, ass, halfwit, nincompoop, blockhead, buffoon, dunce, dolt, ignoramus, cretin, imbecile, dullard, moron, simpleton, or clod. In the flying world, we want you to spread it on the cloth covering of an old aircraft to tighten up the material, because it's... Dope, you dope. Now, this is a word for apparatus, paraphernalia, impedimenta, and it drives our cars along. 
You could wear it for a particular activity, and it's a way of transferring power from one shaft to another. It also has a strange connection to the previous word in that people with bad habits might ask dubious salesmen on street corners if they have any, but in the flying world it's one of the many things you don't forget, or there will be a loud scraping noise as you meet the next word. The next word is where a model struts their stuff while showing off the latest creations, darling. But it can also be a canal, gully, duct, ditch, course, channel, aqueduct, or fluting, to name just a few. Ready for it? Why, it's a... Runway, darling. And the anti-penultimate one that has sadly bent many a piece of stage scenery, or pile, post, pole, pier, buttress, stanchion, bolster, or truss, for you old gents, is a prop. And if you can roam back far enough, the item you forgot was the gear. The thing that pilots do just before they realize they have forgotten the gear is, of course, to create a sudden burst of light as they flash their pearly whites, and in the way of oronyms, they manoeuvre with talent, aptitude, capability, faculty, panache, verve, elan, finesse, poise, elegance, and sparkle as they... Flare their flying machines and touch down with all those words and more. Now, this is an easy one, as it's something that many pilots have to deal with on a daily basis, and it's usually left behind the rod, pole, stake, stick, baton, shaft, shank, rail, counter or bar of your favourite hostelry for the barkeep. Of course, if you're cunning enough, like those Lingus pilots, you'll leave someone else to pick it up. It also refers to a sheet of instructions for the band's drummer or guitarist on how to belt out a melody, but rather worryingly, like an earlier alternative definition of dope and gear, it has questionable connections to the drug trade, particularly LSD. Any mad dog driver will of course be very familiar with it, as they get high on it all the time. Yes, really, it's a... Tab. And on the wonderful Mad Dog, it's moved by Captain Jeff or Captain Dana and all the others, I suppose, to create an aerodynamic force that in turn shifts the hoist, dumbwaiter, lift, granary, silo, or possibly... Elevators, and gets them higher than a hippie and a hot air balloon. Yes, like you, I'm getting a little concerned about these continual references to illegal substances, so let's move on. Our next alternative definition, at least in Britain, refers to rolling papers. You know, the stuff you wrap your joint in. Oops, <laughs> there we go again. Seriously, I had no idea. 
More commonly, it's the bit of our body that keeps all the messy stuff on the inside, but to keep our colonial cousins in the loop, it also refers to giving a buddy an informal hand slap that occurs when two people simultaneously raise one hand each about head high and push, slide or slap the flat of their palm against the flat palm of the other person. The gesture is often preceded verbally by a phrase like Give me some of the outer surface which covers much of my wings and fuselage and other bits of an aircraft. Skin. So how are we doing? You should have got the idea by now and scored around nine. Continuing on with the Mad Dog tab theme, of course the thing that Captain Jeff hangs on to for dear life is actually a piece of equipage, tack, coupling, that's what she said, harness, garment, hitch, or in Ireland, can we please get away from the world of drugs? an ecstasy pill. Of course, it's also the middle of a chicken's egg. It's the... Yolk. Now, in the engine department, we have quite a few that's what she said problems, such as a word that can be a court shoe or vamp, like a Mary Jane with an ankle strap instead of an instep strap, but it mainly forces, drives, pushes, inflates, transports, or injects. It's a pump. But that's not the worst, as the force that opposes drag also causes embarrassment, as it's there in the pumping department with all other synonyms such as ram, prod, poke, push, propel, and shove, all of which point to one thing. Thrust. Now, the next engine-related fun we can have is gag, smother, strangle, stifle, and in archaic times referred to as a throat, gullet, or windpipe. Hence its use today in the choking, asphyxiating, or garroting department. It's the word that Captain Al hates when referring to thrust levers not connected to a carburetor. The... Throttle. Another lever in the same area brings to mind a melange, assemblage, combination, conglomeration, mishmash, hotchpotch, pistache, farrago, blend or brew. We like that last one. And is, of course... Have you got it? The... Mixture. Finally, on the front is a thread maker, or a type of bowler, the cricket variety, who might deliver a Chinaman, googly, flipper, or leg break. It might also be used by a fisherman, particularly for trout. And in addition, it hangs on the boss. That's a bit of an aircraft, you know, not the one in charge. And it's called a... Uh... Spinner. How about a few more things to do with someone who, in an idiomatic phrase, improvises and does something without proper preparation? Well done. They 
wing it. We have had flaps, but what about the thing on the back of some boy racer cars or a reveal that ruins the ending of your favourite TV drama? Well, that would be a... Spoiler! We have more. The slender curved bones that articulate in pairs to the spine and spare ones that are the basis of many a fine meal can also be furrows on a road and describe being teased by Captain Nick. Balloon pilots, please note. But more importantly, form long raised pieces of supporting structure in a wing. Yep, there. Ribs. In a similar vein to a rib, Dr. Steph has got to be loving this, what is a strong pole used as a mast or yard on a ship, or a mineral spring considered to have health-giving properties? In more modern parlance, it would be a health and fitness establishment, but we know it as the main longitudinal structure that travels the span of the wing and bestows upon it strength. The spa. Lastly, in this section, how about that wonderful harmonic noise that occurs when three or more notes are played together? It might also be string, thread, tape, line, rope, cable, wire, or a measure of cut wood, usually about 128 cubic feet. We, as in us aviator types, know it to be the line stretching from the leading edge to the trailing edge of a wing parallel to the center line and call it the... Cord. Of course, if you fly something big, you might have a tall tower-like structure used for carrying electricity cables high above the ground on your wings. It was originally the gateway to an Egyptian temple and comes from the Greek word for entrance. But we hang engines on them and they are called... Pylons. Good job. Before you land, it's traditional to do some clasping, grasping, gripping, clenching and clinging. Or you might be detained, imprisoned, kept in custody, confined, impounded, immured, interned or constrained. Indeed, you might be given an area of land that's held by lease, stocks, property and other financial assets in someone's possession. But knowing most air traffic controllers, the time you will be doing will be... Holding. After your release, it's time to take a new slant on things. A different perspective, point of view, outlook, proposal, submission, motion, appeal or plea. But as an aviator, it would be best to make an... Approach. After having a conversation, a chat, an exchange, a tete-a-tete with someone in a citadel or structure high in proportion to its lateral dimensions, full of operators who rise above others in a... Tower. Your dastardly flying machine might eventually end up on a slope, a bank, gradient, tilt, a 
acclivity or declivity, a change of voltage linearly with time, a ramp. Now don't ask me how our friends from over the ocean, which is also named after the third climatic stage of the post-glacial period in northern Europe between the boreal and subboreal stages, but was actually first used during the era of Herodotus in ancient Greek around 450 BC and derives its meaning from Sea of Atlas in Greek mythology. Sorry, I got diverted. <laughs> that was a joke, not an answer. Anyway, how does it get called a ramp when it's flat? Hmm. On this side of the aforementioned ocean, we tend to use the word for a protective garment, pinafore or smock, an apron. I fear that this competition is fast coming to an end, so let me add a difficult one. One to sort the true geeks from the amateurs. This one can cause fear among people without any reason. It's the bane of a golfer's life. An unidentified aircraft or can be plucked from the nostrils of a snotty boy. A bogey. Finally, thank heavens they all say. A pit or enclosure for fighting birds, a compartment in a sailing warship used as quarters for junior officers and for treatment of the wounded, or the pit of a theatre. The... Cockpit. Right, I make that 28, and I would expect you to have got at least 50% of them, or you shouldn't be listening to the APG. Less than that, and we ask you please to switch to Plain Talking UK. More than 20, and you're obviously devotees of the airplane geeks. And if you've got all 28, then you should be doing your own podcast and not wasting your time listening to me. Bye and thanks. <laughs> Love that. That is so funny. <laughs> and I think I got about 50% actually. Good man. That's what I anticipated. <laughs> yeah, I was short of a subject and I thought I could probably knock something together quite quickly. I love those kind uh, of wordplay like things. That. Yeah. Great. Well, I'm glad you enjoyed it. I think the best part of it was the uh, music. Felt like I was at the circus. Yeah, it was. Yeah, you know, it's the United States Marine Corps band. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> yeah, well, it was. There you go. Well, you know, a lot yeah. of people say that those Marines are a bunch of clowns anyway, right? <laughs> very, Micah very at airplanegeeks.com. <laughs> yes, exactly right. Uh, I can actually tell you what it was called if you give me a couple of seconds. Let okay. me see. Downloads. Uh, the uh, Grimio Polka. Yeah, that's what. Yeah, that's what I thought it was. No, it was a great <laughs> sure. poker. We we were dancing around the kitchen. You should have seen us before we turned the camera back on. <laughs> I love it. Very good. Yes, and I think like a quick polka on top of a um, meatloaf. <laughs> oh, and that meatloaf. Deep. How much bacon did you put on top of that? Just about a pound. A pound of bacon. A pound. Oh my god. <laughs> This is going to be so good. It's going to be gorgeous.
Yeah, I'll have to tell you all about it. It makes great cold sandwiches on rye bread, Nick. You're more than welcome. I am not going to. It's going to be a little while before I uh, hit um, Maine, I'm afraid. And I'd rather be out there in the summer than I expect. It's already starting to get cold, isn't it? No, this time of year is pretty nice. Actually, actually, I've got to tell you, this is the best time of year. September and October are the best times of year to visit Maine. The leaves start to turn. It's just beautiful. Uh, thank you. Maybe next year. Huh? What do you think? Yeah, sounds good. Okay. All right. I think, uh, wow, we haven't really done much as far as feedback is concerned. And our producer is telling us now we only have 40 minutes left of the three-hour mark. So we better get going. What do you think? Sounds good. Let's crank on. Okay. Ben Ippolito sends us this. I believe it used to be the recommendation to have TA only for parallel runways. We're talking about TCAS now. Um, Sydney International Airport certainly had this in the PRM precision uh, radar monitor approaches instructions for a long time. But a few years back, it was removed. I think the reasoning is that modern TCAS or ACAS algorithms can handle the closer spacing and having RA on and a go around for a spurious alert is better than the risks of switching errors on the part of the crew and actual traffic situations where it would assist. Caveat, I don't work an airport with parallel runways, but generally air, air traffic control is trained to resolve compromised separation situations laterally, not vertically. This avoids potentially issuing conflicting instructions to the RA, which we can't see. The general advice is to issue a hard turn, 60 plus degrees, to one or both aircraft, then traffic advice when able. Obviously, each situation is different and each reaction will be unique. So, uh, yes, I think the uh, latest versions of the TCAS software have improved significantly enough for us to re to keep the TA slash RA mode active when doing even close parallel uh, instrument approaches, PRM approaches. But he, you are right, Ben. It used to be in the in the old days when we were starting to do the PRM approaches that that was one of the things that we would do. We would turn off the uh, RA, the resolution advisory function of the TCAS system, just so we didn't get any spurious uh, resolution advisories. But uh, the the engineers came up with a way to or an algorithm to you know help with that particular situation so that you wouldn't have any spurious or unnecessary RAs. Yeah, certainly in the last few years, uh, I don't think there was an airport I flew into that required a, a deselection of uh, RA. And uh, in the in a PRM approach situation, if we got both a breakout and a resolution advisory, we would fly the turn uh, whilst following the vertical guidance of the RA. So we kind of do a combination of the two. I, as I recall, that was the guidance. Yeah. And I think that there are only a couple of places now that, uh, at least at Acme Airlines, where our company procedures require us to turn off the RA function, and it only is under certain circumstances. And San Francisco International is one of those. And again, that's not a PRM parallel approach situation those are actually slightly converging approaches to those very closely spaced runways at san francisco international so that's why that's one of the special 
cases where we turn off the RA and go TA only. But I think it's only one of two uh, that we do at ACME anyway that I can recall. Good to see you're back, Dana. Yeah, I had to go through a complete and total reboot for some unknown reason. Crazy. Well, if it's been a while since you've rebooted your computer, that might be why. Nope. It was rebooted today. Oh, well, I don't know. Don't know what's going on. Well, we're glad you're back. We see you on the video, and we hear you just fine on audio. Awesome. Uh, Great to be back. Let's see. Item item three, Nick Camacho, last uh, episode. Uh, he sent us a couple pieces of feedback, audio feedback, and we said, we'll play one uh, because, you know, we only allow one Nick per show. Thank you. No, I'm just kidding. Um, and uh, he's uh, sent us the second one. Well, he sent them both at the same time, but we're going to play the second one uh, regarding an experience he had when uh, they were over in Europe. And, well, I think it's going to be self-explanatory. So let's hear from Nick Camacho. Hey, Captain Jeff and the rest of the APG crew. This is Nick from the Air Capital. Uh, I thought I'd send in a little feedback regarding a, a recent experience I had on uh, my trip out to Europe this past summer. Uh, as many of you know, I was uh, fortunate enough to be part of the crew of Betsy's Biscuit Bomber and uh, did quite a bit of touring of um, the United States and Europe as we took our airplane uh, around. Uh, but one really cool thing uh, that wasn't really C-47 related happened that I thought I'd uh, share with you guys and then ask a couple of questions kind of associated with it. Uh, while we were while the airplane was based in Duxford, uh, we got a pretty unique opportunity uh, at nearby Cambridge Airport. Um, as Captain Nick mentioned in his plane tale about uh, Betsy's Biscuit Bomber, I was actually over in England with uh, my dad and my brother. All of us are pilots. My dad started flying when he was in... The, uh, enlisted in the United States Air Force in uh, 1963 and 1964. He was based at Mildenhall uh, Air Force Base, uh, just outside of Cambridge, and was actually learning to fly in Tiger Moths. And um, to keep the story short, you know, fast forward uh, 50 years, and uh, when he got on Facebook, he found out that the Cambridge uh, Flyers Group, Cambridge Flying Group, the uh, organization that he had actually started learning to fly in, still existed, and they still actually operated one of the tiger moths that he did his training in. He did his initial training in uh, two different tiger moths, and uh, one of them was still there. Unfortunately, uh, his logbooks were destroyed in a hangar fire uh, shortly after returning to the States, so we're not uh, sure which airplane he actually soloed in, but uh, one of the two that he was flying regularly, uh, registration number golf alpha hotel India Zulu, um, or IZ as he called it, uh, still existed uh, there at the Cambridge Flyers Club. So while we were out there um, at Duxford with the C-47, uh, my dad and brother and I snuck away one morning to uh, Cambridge, and actually all three of us got to go fly that airplane, and um, it was a pretty pretty cool experience for sure. Um, as far as airplanes go, it's a fun airplane to fly. Uh, light on the controls, it has a skid instead of a tailwheel, and it doesn't have any brakes, so it's very limited on its uh, operational envelope because of uh, its ground, the, the ground handling in any sort of uh, windy conditions or gusty conditions are kind of the driver for its operational envelope, which is a little unique, but really cool airplane. Uh, but that got me to thinking about uh, 
some of the cool things that uh, I've been able to do with my dad uh, because we're both um, intimately involved in aviation. And I wanted to uh, ask you guys if you had any um, fond memories of when you were children. Uh, I know, you know, obviously Nick's dad was a pilot. Um, I'm not sure if anybody else on the crew had a parent who was a pilot, either general aviation or commercially. Um, you know, but for Captain Nick, do you have any memories, fond memories of being a small child and flying with your dad? Um, any sort of pleasure or GA flights, or did you always just fly with him, uh, in the course of his commercial job? And then for anyone else, you know, did you do any flying with your parents when you were small or, uh, conversely, do you have any memories of, uh, the first time you got to take, uh, your parents flying after you got, uh, your license or, um, any significant, um, passenger stories of, um, once you got your license. Thanks for the great show. And, uh, I look forward to hearing, uh, your guys' responses. Talk to you again soon. Well, mine's, mine's easy. Um, nobody in my family flew, there were no pilots and no, my, my dad never took me flying or anything like that. So wah, wah, wah. Well, I got to uh, fly a few jump seat trips with uh, the old man. I don't ever remember getting a cabin seat, um, but uh, no, I went out to uh, Africa a few times. I uh, went out to South America when I was a youngster. Uh, great fun. Loved uh, flying in the VC-10. Always felt uh, brilliant sitting there on the jump seat, watching everything. Uh, just not a lot of entertainment because uh, like all long-haul flights, when you're in the cruise, there's not a lot going on. Uh, so, uh, yeah, but, I mean, it was fabulous um, and uh, thoroughly enjoyed it. And I'm sure that planted the seed that uh, eventually blossomed and, uh, you know, aimed uh, my career in the direction it went. Dana? Well, uh, fondly enough, the first time I ever took my mother flying, uh, neither one of my parents flew. Uh, this is when I was working on my cross-country time. I was flying from a very small airport in southeastern Massachusetts, which is uh, called Taunton Airport, Municipal Airport. And I was flying to Hartford Downtown Airport, which is right uh, opposite the river of downtown Hartford. Very small airport as well. And we we're flying over the top of Providence, and we had uh, flight following going, and you know, of course, uh, doing VFR flight plan, learning how to communicate with a, you know, with the air traffic control, you know, slow student pilot. And my mother was sitting in the back seat, and uh, got a notification from air traffic control that there was a, uh, a mad dog that was approaching the area about a thousand feet above us, and uh, that was the first experience I ever had of wake turbulence. <laughs> rolled the airplane almost upside yeah. down <laughs> it was they flew right over the top of us and uh so needless to say uh my mother's white knuckling the rest of the way she was, she was very impressed yeah she was very impressed that we almost uh rolled completely over because it was uh it was um <laughs> it was pretty intense so yeah that's one of my uh one of my fondest memories of uh anything regarding my parents not being a pilot, I have a rather different but very unique experience in terms of flying for the first time with a family member. And actually, uh, just a couple of weeks ago, it was the 50th anniversary of this happening. The first time I ever flew, I was, uh, well, everybody's going to know how old I am now. I was 13 years old, and I flew with my grandfather to New Orleans. And we uh, flew, and he was 73. 
what was fascinating about it. I was the first time I ever flew. I was looking forward to it. I was so excited about it. It was the first time my grandfather ever flew. He was 73 years old. He'd never been on an airplane before. He was in the Navy for all his life, merchant marine, even was on a submarine a couple of times. He was terrified. And I didn't realize it until actually just a few years ago, I told the story for the airplane geeks. The reason I found out or remembered about it is because it, although he liked a nice bourbon every so often and Dana and he would have gotten along really well. He never drank in the morning, but at 11 o'clock in the morning, he ordered a double on the airplane. Happened to be a Delta flight of all things and had a double Jack, uh, double Jack Daniels. And uh, it was just amazing to see that here I was for the first time, his first time, but from two, two different generations, a man born in 1897 and another guy that was only 13 and was just looking forward to it and couldn't be more excited. He probably heard that I was the captain <laughs> and said, double bourbon, please. <laughs> quite possibly. Quite possibly. If he had heard that, it would have been a quadruple. <laughs> <laughs> Not funny. Very funny. Actually. Where's that? Where's... <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> Hey, um, you know, Nick Camacho always mentions when he sends us any kind of feedback that he's from the air capital. And, of course, he's talking about Wichita. And in the latest, well, by the time you're listening to this show, it's not the latest episode of the Airplane Geeks, but the previous one, episode 569, uh, they had a guest on named Sonia Gretemann. And she's the president and creative creative director of Gretemann Group, an aviation specialty marketing agency based in Wichita. And they talked about Wichita and why they came up and coined the term air capital of the world. Very fascinating. If you want to if you're into aviation and specifically aviation history, you need to listen to this episode. But and then she has a book that uh, she took part in um, helping to author. And it's called Wichita, where aviation took wing. But you talk about some name dropping. You're talking about um, Beach, Cessna. Was it Clyde Cessna? What was Beach? William Beach, something like that. Um, uh, Stearman, uh, Bill Lear. Mr. Mooney. Mr. Mooney. Um, just amazing uh, that the names that uh, were were significant in the history of, of aviation and all of it happening in Wichita itself. So uh, pretty cool. And I was going to say, hey, Nick, have you read this book? And if not, you should uh, try to find it because it looks like it would be pretty interesting reading. Mr. Mooney, didn't he start a religion? Yeah, I think that was a different Mooney. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, continuing on. Thank you, uh, Nick, for your audio feedback and your participation in our show. It's always appreciated. Um, Michelle, who is a patron of the Airline Pilot Guy show, um, sent in some feedback. He says, hey, hey, not a, hey, 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 APG crew. <laughs> Sorry. Hey, APG crew wanted to share a goal I achieved recently flying. At the age of 48 in 2015, I started PPL training. One of my early goals at the time was to take my mom and dad up in the plane and overfly their beautiful seaside house and town of Bermagui. I don't know how you pronounce that. Nick, can you help me out? Uh, it's an Australian north, uh, New South Wales. Bermagui, mate. Bermagui. Bermagui. Okay. <laughs> if you say so. I live in Sydney and train out of Camden. 
I took a while, or it took a while, with work commitments, kids, holidays, and achieved my PPL late 2018. Unfortunately, my mother passed away with acute myeloid leukemia in 2017. So I still wanted to take dad up, and almost a year after getting my PPL, weather, plane mechanical issues, we finally got there. I took my dad up. I flew from Camden to Wollongong and picked him up and there as he was staying, oh, picked him up there as he was staying with friends. We flew through the Naura military VFR lane. Naura, yeah, that's right. Okay. And down to Barmagui. Say it again. Barmagui. Barmagui. (laughs) (laughs) About an hour's flight at 100 knots to overfly the town and his house. Lots of photos and video, and I think Dad was loving it. Then, of course, as things happen, a warning light comes on on the dash as we are circling his house. Thadek. Fortunately, there are two in this Liberty XL2. So, what is it? Full authority digital engine control? Is that what the FedEx stands for? I think that's right. Anyway, um, so what to do? I'm at a low altitude of 2,000 feet and not an airport in sight. There were no other indications of any other issues, and the engine was running fine. I started climbing slowly and headed to the closest airport, Maruya. Maruya. <laughs> Nick. Not helping. Okay. Still no issues, and the light goes out. At this point, I called the CFI and had mentioned issue. Oh, at this point, I recall the CFI had mentioned issues with the FADEC before. In fact, the day before, the fuel injector had been blocked. We had taken the plane after and done stalls and cross-field landings. No indication of any sputter, so pretty sure it was not a blocked fuel injector. The light continued to eliminate on and off consistently for the whole return trip. No stress there. I think that's a little sarcasm. I nursed it home to Camden instead of Wollongong. Of course, that meant a four-hour return drive to uh, drop him off. Anyhow, all worked out okay, even I was a little, even if I was a little exhausted. And Dad was able to cross off one of the items on his bucket list. Thanks for listening. Love the show. Clear skies for all. Regards, Michelle. Wow, that must have been a stressful hair-raising situation when you see those FedEx warnings. And uh, you only have one. You have two FedEx, only one engine. I'm a bit surprised his dad had uh, a FedEx failure on his bucket list. That's an... Odd one. <laughs> don't think that was. Don't think that was part of his bucket list. <laughs> oh, okay. Oh, right. I misunderstood. Yeah, but he doesn't really Sorry. make clear, does he, in, in this uh, what his bucket list item was? <laughs> hmm. But if it was on his bucket list, he nailed it. Yeah, absolutely nailed it. No, well so I, done. I had to go. I had to go and look at you know what a Liberty XL2 was. Found a little place uh, selling it uh, in Greenville, uh, no Greensboro, North Carolina, of all places. But uh, this was a video back in 2018 or whatever, so I think it's long sold now. But apparently it has a, uh, it's a single engine airplane with two Fadex uh, and no, um, what do you call it, um, magnetos. And I'm thinking, huh, that's an interesting setup, I think, for a, for a general aviation aircraft, a single engine, low wing uh, general aviation aircraft, wouldn't you say? What kind of an engine has yeah. it got then? It's got a like a Lycoming, I think. Continental okay. 240. Or Continental. Okay. Oh, Dana knows all about it. Yeah, because I'm, I'm looking at it because I had to look it up myself because okay. I've never seen it before. 
But it's a pretty interesting looking airplane. It is very, it's a- pretty, very interesting. I mean, there's 132 of them built, and uh, range was 578 uh, miles and 186 miles per hour is top speed. So probably what 170 knots. Mm-hmm. Probably is a red line. So yeah, probably. Had- I think uh, the lady that was uh, the video that I was looking at that was trying to sell it, uh, a very attractive lady. Uh, who uh, was a, a very knowledgeable salesperson regarding all the capabilities of this uh, airplane. Um, she's, I think she said the cruise, like the standard, the regular cruise is like 140. Yeah. That's pretty good. That's, that's what I was about to say. Actually, it's number I was going to say. Oh, about okay. 140 knots would be, be my guess uh, mm-hmm. for normal cruise. And looks like it's got a rota- uh, uh, FADEC. Yeah, it's a full authority digital engine control. Is that what you said? That's what I said. You are right on the money. Ding, ding. Where's my bell? Ding, 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 ding. Above so, oh, 50%. Forgive like me, guys. I'm, nice I'm, not a, uh, I'm not a piston prop man. So uh, without a magneto, what creates the HT um, power to spark the plugs? Fedek. I don't know. I know, but I mean, what is it? it must be some kind of a high energy, high energy ignition system. In there, I don't know all the mechanical details. I don't either. Because FADEC is just basically the system that's the electronic yeah, computer it's, controls. It's just a little computer. So yeah, uh, it's one where the spark comes from if it's not from a magneto. I don't know. All right. I don't know. I shall live in ignorance. Don't worry, it won't hurt. Well, you know what? We have a wonderful APG community. I'm sure somebody out there knows the answer to this. And ah, it's not in Wikipedia. Oh, it says it's a Continental IOF 240B four-cylinder, horizontally opposed, four-stroke aircraft with FADEC. But that doesn't answer, answer the question, Micah. Yep. What about the ignition system? Well, Hamish says digital electronic ignition. So what the hell's one of those? I don't know. <laughs> okay. I think I had one in my 73 Dodge Dart. Yeah. Right. Okay. I'm it's just probably the exact same one. I'm just having you get ones and noughts into electronic ignition, but there you go. Because that's digital, isn't it? Know. That's ones and noughts. Right. I don't know. I'm probably over- overthinking this. I don't know where I'm going to go when the volcano blows. Everybody, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Um, Before we move on to the next piece, I just I just got a text a little bit ago from our good friend Myla, and Myla is in the middle of a very very difficult line check. So she tells me, and well, you guys have been she through them. Texting you in the middle of a line no, check, very difficult. Line she check. shouldn't be doing that. <laughs> she needs to concentrate on flying the airplane. Yeah, that's exactly what I said. But nonetheless, <laughs> because we all know what it's like, I just think that it would be a nice idea if we could all send some good thoughts our way, uh, because you know a line check can be a tough thing. So anyway, just thought I'd bring that up for the crew. Very okay, good. here we go. Everybody ready to send her good karma, yeah. including all the people that are in the live chat room right now. And okay. Okay. <laughs> well, I think her airplane just crashed. <laughs> I'm, I'm scared because, you know, my, my karma ran over my dogma. <laughs> uh, oh, that deserves a... Uh... You thought I was going to hit the rim shot, didn't you? Uh, now I miss Rick. <laughs> okay so this one i thought would be an appropriate one to play on our show item five this is from somebody named Micah. no i'm sorry micah <laughs> micah sent us some audio feedback 
you didn't need to do that. We're right, you're right here. And there's a microphone right here. Who knew? Yeah, who knew? And now uh, he sent this to me, what, about a week ago or so? Exactly. Yeah. And uh, Michael went up on a um, airplane ride. Well, you know what? Let's let Micah tell us all about this. We're here in Sanford, Maine at Southern Maine Aviation talking with Michael Burns. He's a flight instructor and just took us off a flight. Now, Michael's just been here about eight, nine months now and came up from another Sanford. Michael, what brought you to Sanford, Maine, and where did you come from? Well, uh, all the way from Sanford, Florida. I came up here because, well, one day my fiancé and I said we really wanted to live up in the Northeast, and I looked online and found this little airport here in Sanford, and it seemed like a great bunch of people, so we mailed back and forth and came up, and it was a great fit, so here I am. What are the big differences, if there are any, between flying down in the Orlando area and up here in southern Maine? The seasons and the altitude. Uh, you know, Down in Florida, it's very flat, and uh, you have to worry about towers and whatnot as obstacles, but up here you've got actual mountains. You know, Here at Sanford, you go a few miles to the east, you're out of the ocean. You go a few miles to the west, you're getting into the White Mountains. It's this beautiful scenic place up here and uh, really visually interesting to fly in. Organically, you come up with a lot of talking points in your lessons because of there's so many things to look out for. Uh, cold temperature during the winters or you know, rising terrain and how that might affect your flight plan. Now, as we, were, we just came back from a flight, and we just took a wonderful flight with my cousin who happens to be up from Lantana, and he was PIC for a while, handed off to you, what brought you along as a CFI, because rather than getting checked out, you could do a scenic flight with us, which was great. And we, uh, we flew up, uh, up the coast, uh, did the harbor visual into Portland, Maine, flew up to Freeport from there, flew around a little bit. We were having a nice conversation as we were there. And one of the things that you said was that in terms of your career in aviation, what you want to do is be a CFI. That's a bit unusual. Tell us a little bit about your aviation career and, and your choice in terms of wanting to be a long-term CFI. Well, um, I guess I just really like it. I, um, you know, Even through training, I kind of liked the mentorship role kind of thing among my peers. And... Um, well, I really like the lifestyle. I have a lot of friends that do airline pilot work, and they're away from home oftentimes. I you know, like spending my time with my fiancé, and um, you know, I like the way that they treat me as an employee here. I feel like a partner, not just an asset. Um, it's the lifestyle that I want to pursue. And what kind of students have you had? What ages? And, and how, do they, how do they end up coming to you here at uh, Southern Maine Aviation? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I have had students on every part of the spectrum. I think my oldest was uh, 67. My youngest was just 12. Um, you know, of course, the 12-year-old can't go and fly by themselves yet, but you know, very enthusiastic, very excited to get into aviation, and it's just a joy to fly with them. Uh, I'd say most of my people are around middle age, maybe 40-ish. Um, come from all sorts of backgrounds. I, uh, I think right now my roster is mostly filled with doctors, but uh, you know, people that own their own small businesses, people that just uh, you know, were out of flying for a long time, you know, went on to live their life and are trying to get back into it. Um, you never know who's going to walk through the door. What equipment does Southern Maine Aviation offer? Well, uh, we run a fleet of Cessna aircraft uh, for the most part. Uh, we have three 
nearly identical Cessna 172 SPs, um, which is really convenient for the students because no matter what airplane they pick of those three, you get into it and it's the same thing. The same GPSs, the, everything on the panels is in the same place. Even down to the interior, it looks the same. Um, we also have, in addition to that, a 172 that's got a G1000 panel in it for those that are maybe going into their instruments and wanted to do more advanced uh, avionics in it. Um, and what we flew in today, the 182RG for high performance and complex endorsements. Now, tell us just a little bit more about if people wanted to fly from Southern Maine Aviation and if they particularly wanted to fly with you, because I got to say you were great, how do they get in touch with you? Well, thank you. Uh, you can get in touch with me uh, anytime at uh, my email, m.burns at flyingsma.com or uh, phone number 407-704-9034. Uh, you know, call or text anytime. <laughs> Michael, thanks so much for talking with us here on the Airline Pilot Guy, and thank you so much for a great flight. Well, thanks for coming along with me today. And we'll put his number out there so everybody can call and text it right now, all at the same time. I just thought <laughs> it was really interesting to talk to a, a, a young pilot who decided that he wants to be a CFI. He doesn't want to move on to uh, airlines, which is what a lot of pilots want to do. He doesn't want to do anything else. He loves teaching, and he wants to be a CFI for a career. And I haven't met anybody like that in, in years and years and years. And so I thought it would be interesting to, to talk to him for a little bit. Sure enough, I thought it was. You know, his bosses could be listening to the show. You know that, Micah, right? I think that's perfectly fine. Southern Maine Aviation is a great place to work. And I'm impressed with somebody who, you know, we were talking about that in the car today, uh, how, you know, so many people, you know, being a CFI is just a stepping stone. But for him, it sounds like it's, it's, it's the destination and he wants to be a, a professional, you know, a, as good a instructor as he can be and we need more people like him absolutely he's a teacher and he loves teaching and he loves flying he can combine both yeah it's a unique talent and there's a lot of people in the industry that exactly that they just pass through and just use the time to build the time but uh yeah i know a lot of people in the business also that are professional uh flight instructors uh there's one here in in uh, atlanta area that i that that i actually worked with quite a bit and he uh, believe it or not, works out in my gym now. So uh, I, I get to see him on a regular basis, and that's over 20 years. So uh, he loves it and uh, does a little side flying, but you know, he's always been just a professional instructor. And it's, it's really hats off to those guys and gals that do that because uh, it's, it's a lot of work. It's hard work. It's a lot of preparation. Um, and uh, not the, the reward is is not as good as an airline pilot, but believe me, if you're a professional instructor out there, you can actually do pretty good. And Max Trescott does that too, and uh, yeah, he's done that other parts of his career, but this is what he's decided to do, and he's a, a full-time professional instructor. That flight itself, by the way, was absolutely wonderful. You saw some of the pictures. We took off from Sanford, flew up, uh, did a, a slow low approach into Portland, flew the harbor visual, and you could see how beautiful that was. Uh, there was, you could see Two Light State Park. Dana and I was there. We got a couple of pictures of ourselves down there when we were there last time, and then flew up to uh, Lambert's uh, Point in Freeport, circled around there, and, and came on back. It was absolutely gorgeous. I'm impressed uh, with that uh, fort. I'm assuming it's a fort, some kind of battery uh, that you uh, flew near uh, Micah. What's that called? 
That's Fort Gorgas, and it's right over the uh, part of the harbor visual approach, right into Portland. It was built in for the to protect Portland Harbor during the Civil War. It was never used, and they're just working right now on redeveloping it into uh, probably some hotels and shopping, and uh, and it's a big destination. Right now, you can only get out there uh, by kayak if you want to go out there. It's yeah, I, I realize it's cut off. Um, so who raises and lowers the flag each day? I am not sure, but I know they have someone that does it. <laughs> Oh, they okay. I'm just curious because it doesn't look like anyone lives there. Yeah, it's pretty though. Yeah. Hey, do you think we have time for a uh, technical advisory? Yeah, definitely. Okay, Chris Ellerby uh, via Facebook. He said, "New listener here, and I have to say, you guys have pretty much inspired me to try and get my pilot license. I'm about to go back to school for unmanned systems applications as well, and will be getting my drone license." I've been an avionics technician for the past 12 years now, first in the military, then in my civilian time. I was wondering, for home simulators, if you guys had any recommendations. Keep up the podcast, and I look forward to the next one. Safe flying. And I know nothing about home simulators. I'm sure that Dana probably has much more knowledge regarding this. But I did some searching on Google, and I found a uh, an article on... Uh, sporties.com and uh, they uh, this was back in 2017 and they have a, a couple of choices here for like a good system which is basically um, a company called ch products yoke and rudders and using microsoft flight simulator x or 10 and the uh, better system is satec satec yoke and rudder pedals with x-plane which is another PC-based simulation uh, application. And then the best one they have is one I've heard of this company before, and I've heard it's kind of expensive, Redbird. And the uh, product they have here is a Redbird J with RD1 rudder pedals. And uh, that, so the first one I mentioned was, came in in 2017 at about um, $275. The better system was about $400. $400. And then the Redbird simulator uh, was clocking in at $2,600. So obviously, the more money you spend, the more the better the system is. But again, uh, that that's all I can do to help out. Chris, I don't know anything about this. Dana, do you have any uh, tips or advice for... Uh, yes, Chris. Uh, as far as simulators go, uh, it really depends on what you want to use and what your, your goal is. Uh, both the uh, Microsoft Flight Simulator and, and uh, um, uh, Xplane, both are excellent, uh, excellent at doing what they do, and that is a home base uh, simulator. You can take it to the complete next level. Jeff was talking about some of the different uh, uh, plug and plays that you can plug into your computer and use a you know a yoke. Uh, I know of people, and I'm sure some are in the community that uh, that listen that have actually gone ahead and com- completely constructed an entire cockpit. Uh, into you know using multiple screens and using real real life um, uh, flying controls and, and blah blah etc cetera, etc cetera. so you can take to any extreme you want but any of the programs that uh, Jeff mentioned explain the Microsoft Flight Simulator um, are going to be your best most advanced uh, I think if I remember correctly 
It's been a couple of years since I've looked at them, but you can get just about any aircraft model out there for either one of those sims. So if you wanted to, let's say, fly the L-1011, for example, with the real world, uh, real world sounds and real world uh, switches and, and uh, um uh, everything that works, you can go ahead and download all the different packages and, and be able to actually fly the aircraft or a Mad Dog or an A330. I mean, they're, they're, it's amazing what's out there. Uh, the best setups usually tend to be a, a, at least a three-screen setup where you have the ability to have more of a three-dimensional world in front of you. Um, but certainly any one of those programs are, are going to be your best bet. What you decide to do for periphery, uh, whether you decide to fly it with your mouse, with your, your, your laptop or your keyboard, or actually buy a yoke and, um, um, yoke and, and, and uh, um, throttle controls, et cetera, and get rudder pedals and all that. Uh, my best advice to you would be to look at the online reviews for each one of them and to see what people are saying on, on the user friendliness of them and, and what they recommend. To, and there are a lot of forums out there as well that you can access that people uh, talk about too. I was going to ask about this, uh, Robert Fairbairn in our chat room, who is a big part of our community. Um, he, uh, knows quite a bit about these, uh, Sim- home simulators. He said that there are some Redbird simulators that you can actually log time by using them, and, I, and that's that was the question I was going to have. If you know, if you have to, if if that's worth anything as far as you know, working toward your hour requirement. And he said, that, yeah, there's some of the Redbirds you can. But uh, he said that he'd be happy to uh, for for me to get him in touch with uh, Chris regarding his recommendations and advice. He said. You know, doing it on a show like this and, you know, texting and chat rooms and that kind of thing is probably not going to work very well. So he can give him a lot more information. So I'm going to set these two guys up and uh, Robert will be able to uh, to uh, give Chris, if you're listening, um, your your advice for what uh, Robert thinks would be the thing to do. Yeah, it's right in his wheelhouse. I mean, he's an expert in that area. So that's uh, that's probably the best best route. Okay. And you know that Robert is a true gentleman, and you know how you can tell. No, how? Because he knows how to play the banjo, but he knows good enough not to. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Last time I saw him, he had that banjo out, and he and he was playing something that'll and I'm thinking, I'm out of here. Yeah, don't blame you. I've seen that movie. (laughs) Yeah, don't don't want to see the sequel. All right. Uh, looks like we're already at the three-hour point. We have a lot of more um, feedback to cover, but we just don't have time on today's show. We're going to move it over to the next show, and uh, that includes people like uh, Wilson Gill and Adam uh, had uh, some thoughts about uh, Nick's Plane Tale and Ramstein, uh, Derek, uh, Dixon, Robert, Gail, Ray, and others. So. Uh, please continue to send in your great feedback to Airline Pilot Guy, actually feedback at AirlinePilotGuy.com and uh, head over to our website, uh, AirlinePilotGuy.com, where you'll find information about the crew, the community, and uh, so much more, including a dedicated uh, Plain Tales uh, page. Uh, and remember that that's a standalone thing where you can uh, subscribe to and be delivered to your uh, podcast client software on your whatever device you listen to podcasts on well worth it and uh, so much more so again airlinepilotguy.com and we are also on social media and captain nick do you want to tell everybody about that 
Yeah, on the tweets, you can find us with the handle at APG Crew. And on Facebook, just look for Airline Pilot Guy. All right. And we are also on a quasi uh, social media site called Slack. And uh, did Hillel make it? I think, I think I, he's upstairs in the bathroom. Okay. Yeah. Hillel? Well, you're on, man. What? Shampoo? What's he doing up there? They're right next to the tub. Okay. Well, that's kind of weird, I think. APG listeners, please join us on our Slack team. Slack is a communication, coordination, and sharing platform that works on your mobile, laptop, or browser. On Slack, we share news and ideas. We suggest episode and plain tales topics. We plan events and meetups. To get into the Slack team, please email me at slack at airlinepilotguy.com. That's S-L-A-C-K... Sierra Lima Alpha Charlie Kilo at airlinepilotguy.com or send me a tweet with your preferred email address to at Hillel and I'll send you an invitation. That's Hillel spelled Hotel India 11 Echo 1 and see you in Slack. I wouldn't go in there for a while, Captain. Okay. Thanks. <laughs> and with that, uh, thanks everyone for downloading the show, for uh, participating in our live show and chat room. And until next time, wish, oh, and thank you to our dear producer, Liz, in Toronto, making us look as good as possible (laughs) for what she has to deal with. And until next time, wishing you clear skies, unlimited visibility, and tailwinds. Take care, and God bless. Bye, everybody. Have a great day. See ya. Callens, Douglas. Good day. I used to be such a good, good pilot. Till I started APG I opened doors for little old ladies I helped them to their seats Airline pilot guy I fly America Airline pilot guy He can't land in heavy fall I got no friends cause I'm always flying I just don't have the time But I can land this old plane I can land it just fine Airline, how guy I fly a